VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, April the 28th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's producing this Come On With It edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Oh, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 8626. So we woke up to a nice light dusting of snow on the ground this morning. little burst of sunshine yesterday afternoon. Felt good, albeit still frigid out there. But anyway, here we go. All right, uh, happy 50th anniversary to the good folks at Sport NL. So they're the umbrella organization representing just about every amateur and minor sport in the province. They do a great job, in my personal opinion. So they've got a new event called the Sport NL Summit, bringing together athletes, organizations to talk about sports in the province. They've also got a meet and greet this afternoon, or pardon me, this evening, 6 p.m. at the Sheraton Hotel. Drop by, say hello to fellow athletes, organizers, executive volunteers, and the like. Some of the key discussions during the reception will be surrounding sport law and ethics. So happy 50th to the folks at Sport. NL Growlers won last night, take a 3-1 lead in their playoff series, and the Leafs lose. I would imagine, just like some of the Leafs fans here in this building, feeling pretty anxious now, not liking the prospects of going back to Tampa Bay for Game 6, and then who knows, Game 7 is a anybody's game, so <laughs> Leafs boy. And Dawson Mercer, man, what a season the kid is having. Last night scored his first ever playoff goal, added an assist in a 4 nothing win, so the Devils have rattled off three straight to take a 3-2 lead over the New York Rangers. Mercer was actually third star of the game as well. And Blair Burst, we haven't been talking about Blair much lately, and we should be. So, of course, from Gander, Blair's a professional golfer. He's playing on the Latin American PGA Tour. Opened up yesterday uh, in round number one with a 5-under 67, tied for second place. Go get him, Blair. And for basketball, we had a great chat yesterday with the Kokomo Bobcat coach, Cliff Levingston, a former NBA player, two-time world champion. He and his Kokomo Bobcats back in action against the Rogues at Mary Brown Center tonight. And it was today, and this date in history, 1967, that Muhammad Ali, he refused induction into the U.S. Army, consequently stripped of his title, and there was court cases all the way to the Supreme Court about Ali and that particular decision. And an interesting one, you know, where the world of music, where we get our music, and how artists get paid for the music has changed dramatically in the last 10, 20 years. It was on this date in 2003, after Apple had signed uh, contracts with five major record labels, they launched the iTunes Store. Kind of innocuous now, right? iTunes, the biggest music vendor in the world. They've sold 25 billion songs, 25 billion songs in 119 countries. How's about that? Okay. So the province apparently is uh, considering legal challenges against Marine Atlantic and consequently the federal government regarding the increase in the fuel, fuel surcharge. This Marine Atlantic is our constitutional highway, right? And so the fuel, fuel surcharge, they talk about offering this in the era of transparency. So updates on the 1st of June and the, the, pardon me, December the 1st. So the fuel surcharge is going from 13% to 17%. So obviously the tourism industry would be worried about that. But I think we should all be concerned with this. Every bit that comes across on Marine Atlantic will see this increase. And consequently, that'll trickle down to my pocketbook and yours. So the number one problem plaguing this province regarding Marine Atlantic service is the cost recovery model, which is at 65%. So 65% of operating costs have to be recovered through fares. It's long overdue to fix that. 
65% is just way too high. It sounds more realistic at 50%. And on that front, when the government themselves, and looking at comments coming directly from the federal government, this year, talking about fares to cross the Confederation Bridge to support PEI. Here's a uh, uh, quote directly from the federal government. Freezing tolls for the 2023 on the Confederation Bridge will support PEI residents and businesses who have been hit hard by continued pandemic impacts, high inflation, most recently Hurricane Fiona, especially during economic rebuilding and recovery. Well, if that's the case, then what makes Marine Atlantic any different? Yes, the cost recovery model is the number one problem that we have. It's fine to tell me that it's enshrined in the Constitution, but with the costs associated with it, and yes, it may indeed have an impact on a tourism industry that bounced back somewhat last year, certainly operators and their employees looking for a big year this year, this doesn't help. And yes, it'll impact the cost of groceries and everything else under the sun that comes across on Marine Atlantic. So that one used to be all the rage for politicians to talk about. It's kind of gone off the radar, but now the province talking about potential legal challenge. How that will work, I don't know, but we should take it on. And of course, someone linked that story via email uh, saying one more time that if we had a fixed link, some of these concerns would not be the way they are today. So again, I'll put it out there on that person's behalf. And talk about fuel. ExxonMobil, not struggling. Profit's not a bad word, but their profitability has grown by 4% in the first quarter, $11.4 billion in the quarter. That is the highest in the company's history. So fuel, Exxon, how you doing? All right, speaking of fuel, it really does look like there'll be no further production at Terra Nova with the FPSO continuing to be worked upon in Bull Arm. So there's back and forth in the House of Assembly about whether or not that'll float out elsewhere. But Sonovus has backed it out. They have a 34% stake. Suncor is not giving any further updates or timelines associated with the FPSO. So this is still remains the big story, and I'll put it back in there because of the issue surrounding fuel. And royalties of the government were in big time on that particular rig. A little bit surprised yesterday that we're no takers talking about regionalization because when it was proposed and the report was tabled last year, then there was lots of whether it be people in full-throated support of it or absolutely opposed to now, the government, I mean, I really don't know the thought process behind this. It's one thing to tell me, based on our geographic area and population density, means that it doesn't make any sense in this province. So says the minister responsible, Crystal and Howell. Then goes on to talk about there's no way to roll over the taxation issue to capture some 25 regions or 25 counties or whatever the case may be. So I'm sure the conversation, whether it be size of relief in local service districts or municipalities or communities that thought, let's see what the framework looks like. And I'm sure some of this comes back to the fact that all 25 would probably be a little bit different. Now, there would be some distinct overlaps had they proceeded with this particular plan. But now that's gone by the wayside. Does that mean it's gone forever? Or will you just see what organically happens insofar as any community cooperations or cost sharing or whatever this would have looked like had they proceeded? But no uptake yesterday, maybe some today, if you are so inclined. Okay. Now, even if you're the most pro-immigration person in the province, and I'm absolutely on side with immigration, the story here, I think, begs further comment and question. The province has doubled its yearly capacity to accept newcomers to the province. Okay, here's some numbers. The uh, yearly number of immigration spaces from the federal government has increased from 1,500 last year to over 3,000 this year. When you incorporate the numbers of family members coming, represents a capacity of 67 new ho- newcomers nominated annually. Okay. 
Jerry Byrne, the minister responsible for immigration, says the largest number of applications forwarded to Ottawa by the province in history this, this past year, or this, this past January. Okay. If we don't have the required supports in place for newcomers, then eventually they'll probably leave. It's one thing to come, it's another thing to stay. And it, again, does not make you a bad person to ask questions about this, because if we're not prepared for the number of people coming to the province, whether it be domestic travelers, whether it be people relocating from uh, Toronto to St. John's or to Cornerbrook or wherever, if we don't have housing and we still have the struggles with access to health care, then this is a question and a conversation we need to have. You can be absolutely bullish and understand the economic upside, the societal upside of immigration, because it's very real. But if we don't have a plan, because the plan does not include long-term stays in, in hotels, right? It does not include long-term struggle for these types of supports needed for whether it be adults or their children to see Newfoundland and Labrador as a permanent home. So yes, it is fine to seek more newcomers, maybe filling in some skilled gaps, whether it be in healthcare or construction or whatever the case may be, but we don't seem to have the infrastructure in place to accommodate them. And if they don't find housing, if they don't find a job, then they're going to leave. So we put in big effort, and there is a price tag associated with this. And yes, no one begrudges anyone a short-term stay in a hotel while you're trying to get settled. Of course, it's hard to flip a switch, arrive from wherever in the world, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, months down the line, family of five in the one hotel room, that's not good for them. It's not good for us. So it's one thing to double the capacity, but it does beg questions about preparedness and infrastructure and supports required. What do you think? Let's talk about it. Okay. So there's World Energy GH2 opportunities for you to get more information about the proposal on the port of port Peninsula. People have been moaning the fact that they say they don't have enough info to make an informed thumbs up or down for this particular project. Now, some people have simply made up their mind. If you want more information, they've got 20 hours of info sessions over the course of four days. All right. It began on the 24th, went 25, 26, 27. If you attended either of these or those, Give us a shout to let us know the type of questions and answers they were getting. Whether or not there was a ducking and the dodging of specific questions that leaves you still with a seed of doubt. Or you can be completely all in on this project and the potential for green hydrogen, what it might mean for the future here, to get in on the ground floor because the industry pretty much is, for all intents and purposes, in its infancy. So they had all of these open houses. Hopefully you went to one and you can fill us in with what you heard. Okay. Hoping to speak with Mayor Brian Keating from Marystown today. They've got a meeting coming up uh, at the town hall on Monday regarding the amount of crime. Vandalism, break-ins, home invasions, and the trauma that leaves behind for the residents. They say they've seen a significant uptick. Also, some more information about the Canning Bridge, who can and cannot cross the bridge. We know the government has committed to replace it, but it's going to take a number of years before that comes to pass. So, as a resident or for the mayor, we're looking forward to speaking with you. And in the world of crime, let's see here, what do I got? Okay. So Adam Mercer was murdered in Harbor Grace, and he was found in a burnt-out truck on Glover Road. The RCP now say they're pretty sure that multiple people were involved and looking for the public's help. Certainly there's people out there who know what's going on. You know, when one person is involved as the culprit or the perp, then that secret is a little easier kept and investigations become a little bit more tricky. When you have two or three or more people involved, for sure someone knows what's going on. And if you were one of the witnesses that saw whether the black Ford F-150 at the gas station or they're looking for uh, two other vehicles here, a black Subaru hatchback, a gray Mazda 3 hatchback, 
if you're in the general public, this is a heinous crime, right? Adam Mercer was dead. And the RCMP are convinced. They don't have enough evidence to lay charges as of yet, but they're convinced multiple people are involved. So if you want to talk about crime in this one in particular, and if you have any information, please do the right thing and come forward to Crime Stoppers or directly to the RCMP. All right, sticking with the courts. So <laughs> the last provincial election, of course, we know was an absolute mess. There was a breakout of COVID in February 2021. Then there was the lack of uh, poll station workers to even have vote in person, a possibility. So elections, I know, I think over the course of the next couple of months, there was three extensions for mail-in ballots. It was a problem. It resulted in a historic low of apathetic uh, population. Only 48.24% of eligible voters cast a ballot. Some say quite clearly they couldn't get a ballot. So there was one citizen. His name is... uh, uh, Weimar Whitby, he's part of this uh, suit against the government questioning the legality of the most recent election. And, of course, two former members of the House of Assembly, Alison Coffin and Jim Lester, who both lost their seats, they're part of this challenge. Here's the question I would have. So on Wednesday, they set a trial date. Okay, it's going to be from February 19th to March the 1st of 2024. So let's just say hypothetically that the courts agree with Mr. Whitby Miss Coffin and Mr. Lester, then what? So you can throw it out and send us back to the polls if that's what the outcome will be. But that doesn't change the fact that the election was a mess. It doesn't change the fact that the government has been in place since they won. And so what will be the, you know, I, fair enough for Miss Ms. Coffin, Mr. Lester, Mr. Whitby to do this. Absolutely. It's their, it's their 100% right to do it. But what do you get from it? But the court dates have been set for next year, 2024. All right. Apparently, we're going to get an update this morning from the Association of Seafood Producers about this season's snow crab. They said a couple of days ago they weren't willing to wiggle at all on price. So there's lots of moving parts to this conversation. I guess we'll find out once and for all their, I would imagine, their final position on this spring's snow crab season. So that comes at 11. We'll bring you the details as soon as we have them in hand. Oh, it's postponed now, is it, Dave? Oh, so Brian Medor just walked in and told Dave Williams it's been postponed. Do we know till when? later on today so it is going to happen today so maybe there's some 11th hour discussions happening between them maybe just their members maybe with the union maybe with the government but apparently the uh, postponement will bring it sometime this afternoon but we will indeed bring you the details as soon as we know them and inside the world of fish whether it be the capelin the process for lobster and the aquaculture story now that Greg is going to harvest some 5,000 metric tons of their five kilogram uh, farm salmon which are unable to reproduce was one of the concerns people had when there were mass escapes which we have seen several times here in the province their inability to reproduce means we won't see that interbreeding with the wild stock so that's one thing but on the processing side you know i'm sure the folks at oci and the union are quite disappointed frustrated or angered you pick the the name or the number the fact that now Quillen Brothers is getting the uh, job for their plant out in Bay de Verde. So there's a lot to that story as well. And we have been talking about the issues surrounding children being dismissed or discharged from uh, daycare centers because they don't have an inclusion worker. So whether that be children on the spectrum or other issues that have seen them unable and their families unable to find a space, that story is really bigger than we've been given a credit for. But inside the world of autism, I want to say a hearty congratulations to my friend who I worked with for many, many years at Rogers TV, whether it be on Out of the Fog or in particular the hockey broadcast, Tom Jackman. He's been a long-standing member of the board of directors at Autism Canada, and he's the recipient of the second annual 
Jim and Jeanette Munson Autism Leadership Award. So he's an autism advocate talking about the need for people in the general public to be more accepting and an understanding of the autism spectrum. He's spoken at many national conferences, including over in Geneva at the Center for Autism Conference in Toronto, pardon me, at the Geneva Center for Autism Conference in Toronto. Congratulations to you, Tom. We've invited Tom on if you'd like to talk about the advocacy work he does and maybe to chime in some of the other stories we're hearing regarding children on the spectrum or adults and the supports required. So way to go, Tom. Harsh, uh, hearty congratulations to you. And one more. This is a GoFundMe campaign, and it's another guy that I've known for a long time and I've worked with on many fronts, Seamus O'Keefe. Business person, of course, he was the executive director at the George Street Association. I worked with him at the Avalon East uh, Senior Hockey Group, and he's a fine fellow who put in massive efforts, dealt with all kinds of big events here in the province. He's had some diabetic-related complications, had a leg amputated in 2022 following a foot injury. Now he requires dialysis treatments. We need to give Seamus some support. He's been so supportive of so many different individuals and organizations and events here in the province. There's a GoFundMe campaign that has been launched. If you want to get the direct link from me, all you have to do is send me an email. I'll send it directly on to you. But if you go to GoFundMe, it's called the Fundraiser for Seamus O'Keefe. We wish you well, Seamus, and hopefully people are able to chip in, try to help you hit your target. All right, we're on Twitter. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But let's have a great show on this Friday. That looks for that means I'm looking forward to speaking with you right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go we'll begin this morning on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Liam. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? Excellent today. Thank you for asking. How about you? Good, good. Can't complain. She's a beautiful sunny morning up here in Toronto, I can tell you that. Well, lucky for you, here in town, grey, overcast as it has been for the last couple of weeks, but c'est la vie, that's spring weather where I live. Boy, that's terrible, but that's it, I suppose. <laughs> that's it. Well, listen, you know that I usually come and I speak a little bit about... Uh, um, about the theatre that I do, where I've called about, you know, about the royal family. But today I want to speak about sports. And I wanted to give a, a little shout-out to my cousin, Dawson Mercer. And by what a what a great game that they uh, that they played last night. And his first goal in, uh, in the playoff season. I mean, absolutely incredible. He's had some run. He had a good season last year as a rookie, but he's had an incredible season as a sophomore. Has, hasn't missed a single game as a devil since he laced him up for his first NHL game last year now with his first career playoff goal and it was an absolute beauty on a two-on-one one-timer buried it I'm really impressed by Mercer as are the devil players as are the devil coaches and their fans they love him down there and so they should Oh my God, and uh, and everyone loves him back home as well. Yeah, you know, and he's so and he's so down to earth and so humble. I think that's you know uh, part of his uh, his appeal as well. And he's just a great, you know, a great Bayman, a great Bayman from Bay Roberts. Yeah, certainly. certainly. Yeah, and so, you know, and uh, he comes from a great hockey family. Dawson's, you know, the, the, a lot of uh, our cousins have went on scholarships and and stuff like that to play sports and what have you, and done quite well, but. Yeah, quite proud. Yeah, as you should be. I'm really enjoying following along. I've only met Dawson once, and that just so happened to be at the Stanley Cup party last summer when Newhook brought the uh, the uh, trophy home. So, you know, one thing I'll say, and this is not a critique, this is just an observation, he's not a big man. But I tell you what, for the guy his size, he has no fear of going to the front of the net, no fear of being in the corners. He's really quite difficult to deal with in front of the net, spends a lot of time there. So he's obviously got the guts on top of the skill. Oh, my. 
my God, he's not afraid of the action. He's right into it, right in the thick of it, because he's hungry for it. You can see it. He He's young. He wants this, just like, you know, anybody playing for their dream, you know, that's uh, that, that's where you got to be, you know, or even in the theater. You got to you got to eat it. And he's uh, and he's eating it and uh, and doing a great great job. It's the confidence, you know. You can just see it. I had an opportunity to see him live this year, which was really exciting. That's what I got for my uh, Christmas present. My wife and I gave it to each other, and oh, he I- is brimming with confidence. You can smell it off him from the stands, and that's the only way to be. And of course, some confidence simply comes with the performance and the numbers he's putting up. But boy, oh boy, he's the last guy on the ice in the warm up. You can see how he kind of chatters with the opposing players. And what have you. So, yeah, good for Dawson. I'm thrilled for him. Yeah, he's certainly not afraid of it. No, certainly. And he's uh, doing great. Well, uh, Patty, listen, I won't take up any more of your morning, but I uh, want to say thank you again for taking my call. And uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be talking to you again soon, my friend. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Liam. Thank you. And uh, take care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's keep going here and go to line number four. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Burjo LaPoyle. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology. That's Andrew Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How about you? Good. Uh, Actually, on the road this morning, heading to Gander for the uh, Central uh, Mining Expo. So uh, it's going to be a good day. I think it's a lot of excitement in that area. And uh, they've got a pretty impressive keynote speaker today in uh, Eric Spratt, who's a really well-known Canadian investor. And uh, so looking forward to hear what he has to say. Yeah, I've been exchanging notes with Norm Mercer from the mining group, uh, looking for some time with him or some of his members, because I'm all in on some of the mining opportunities, the economic opportunities that are in front of us here in the province. But let's start with oil. You know, we have really committed to the Terra Nova project with $200 million in cash, $300 million in royalty relief. Now Suncor's not even giving us updates anymore. And I guess Sonovas, being cautious, have taken out production from that oil field out of their corporate governance for 2023 sounds to me like they don't think there's going to be any resume production in this calendar year what more do we know so basically what i can say is very similar to what you've just put out there i mean we're dealing with you know sonovas put out that uh, report uh suncor is the actual operator and right yep. now there's no doubt that this is delayed significantly uh, from what they had anticipated, um, I, I can see the, I guess the the corporate purpose of del- you know basically not assuming uh, any oil uh, production this year because the reality is I don't I don't know if they truly know what they are looking at in terms of the the refit work that remains to be done and whether it will be in production in 2023. Uh, everything I've heard indicates that it should be, but. Uh, given the fact that even the operators themselves uh, seem to be having some uh, difficulty figuring that out, you know, kind of puts us in the situation. Now, uh, I, I'm not, I, I got to be honest, I'm not totally uh, overly concerned here uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, number one, the royalty relief. This project was offline in December of 2019. It hasn't been online since then. So that there was very much the possibility that there was zero royalty remaining there. Uh, the second part is that, you know, certainly we've gotten an extreme amount of value uh, from this investment, and we're poised to get more. But right now, depending on where this goes, look, we'll, we will reassess the investment we've made. 
but I think it's incumbent on me. I've got to make one point, and certainly nothing that has been said by this media outlet, but CBC did a story uh, just this week talking about it, and they call it a heavily publicly subsidized project or mostly publicly subsidized. Our investment is literally less than 30%. So I do think there's a need for, uh, you know, to get things factually correct. And I want to put that out there now. Fair enough. But we are involved and we know with government monies, the way how it's being spent and the amount of money being spent, there's still a lot to this and the 800 direct and indirect jobs. Inside the agreement with Suncor and their partners, including Synovus, were there any caveats regarding time frames and uh, goals or hopes? Because we know that there was, you know, there was no yard here facility for all the work that was done in Spain. We know that to be true. But some of the work that's going to be taken on in Bullarm, and hopefully there's no option for them to float it out anywhere else. So is there any, anything in the agreement about, you know, floating targets on the $300 million? Yeah. Are there any floating targets on the $200 million cash, some of which well, they might be paid back if we don't get going or something like that? Ob- yeah, obviously. I mean, look, we, we didn't in- invest this. But, you know, we had a, a choice there to make an investment based on uh, going back going back for refit, and going back to the offshore period. This wasn't a case of, well, hopefully this happens. If this does not happen, there will be a reassessment of the investment and and everything else that comes with it. That being said, right now, uh, I can tell you that as of the end of December, there's about 650, 660 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians that are working on it. Uh, My understanding, actually, is that number is going to increase based on the work that has to be redone here. And it is correct. I mean, uh, there has been a lot of rhetoric out there that every single bit should have been done here when the fact is that there was no facility that could handle it. never has been. This exact same Terranova FBSO went to Rotterdam back 15 years ago for the similar type project. So our investment was based on, look, if we did not do this, there there was about 28,000 person years of employment that would have been lost and $330 million in lost taxes and future royalties, let alone the thousands of jobs. That's what the investment was based on. If, does that, if that does not come to fruition, then there will be a reassessment. Right now, I'm hoping that this is just a case of, look, further work is required in order to get it back in production. That work is being done in Newfoundland and Labrador by our people. Uh, so let's see where we go from there. Yeah, I hear floating numbers about maybe upwards of possibly a thousand people doing the remaining work on the FPSO, which is no small potatoes. Uh, sticking with oil for a second. So. Where are negotiations or conversations with Equinor, whether it be about the amount of work done here or the royalty regime or Article 82? Is it in their hands now for a final business business sanction, or are we still in the negotiation process? We are absolutely still in that negotiation process. So just to ensure that, because, and again, Patty, I'm very cognizant of what I say because the it does have an impact and people can assume things. So I wouldn't want people to think that this fully sits in Equinor's uh, mandate right now. Yes, they have the final decision internally on whether they sanction or not, because it is an internal competition between this project and other ones. But they are not at that point yet, because we have not reached uh, a new framework or benefits agreement based on the changes in the pro- uh, project since the last one. That is still ongoing. It's uh, I can tell you, it's not a sort of a, oh, we'll take two or three weeks and get back together. This is very, um, how do I put this? This is pretty much a day-to-day issue for both sides. Uh, I do think it's a, the opportunity for a win-win here for both the province as well as the operator and everybody that's involved, uh, but we're still trying to get to that space. Um, the one thing I'll say about it is that 
we make clear and continue to make clear and always make clear and we've had to continue to do it uh, because they are a new entrant into our field from Norway that this is not a Norwegian project that this is a Newfoundland and Labrador project and we need to ensure that we get the benefits therefrom. So we've made that message clear. A lot of conversations on specifics. And look, I, I think things uh, are progressing. Uh, but again, it's going to take some time and we continue to press our case pretty acutely. Is there a third party involved here? And I, by that, I mean the federal government, because hopefully you can share some information here, but it's outside our economic protective zone. And no. some of, what, just one second, let me just set it up. So with the the need for Article 82 at the United Nations to kick in, the law of the sea or something along those lines, someone's going to have to pay upwards of hundreds of millions of dollars to the United Nations here. The province has said the feds should be on the hook here because Canada signed on, not the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm sure Equinor has zero interest. So is the federal government part of this conversation regarding that one sticky point? So they would be a part of the unclosed agreement, you're right, and basically this being the first project that extends into, we'll, we'll call it international turf. Um, so they're not a part of this framework, they're not a part of this conversation. Their biggest interest in this obviously was the environmental sanction process, uh, which we went through last year, which took longer than it should have. Um, that being said, we have made it clear our position was and still remains that they were the signatory to this and that the province and the people should not be on the hook uh, for something that they committed to. Uh, Equinor, and I think they could say it for themselves, but my understanding is that obviously they, uh, nobody is interested in paying, you know, paying this or being responsible for this uh, to, uh, to Canada or to the UN or whoever. Uh, so that's not, there hasn't been a resolution, but we haven't died I guess, diverged or gone away from our position all along, which is that you figure it out on your end, not our obligation. Let's talk uh, hydro for a second. So there was a provincial committee struck looking at the implications of 2041. And of course, a lot of work has to be done well prior to that because both sides have to be prepared for whatever the outcome will be. So is there a report or an analysis in hand that government has with that committee's work? So what I can say is that, look, I, I don't think there is a report in hand that I'm aware of. Uh, and certainly, like, we do have this committee that has been tasked and, and, again, made up of fabulous people, volunteers, essentially, uh, coming from varying backgrounds, whether it's uh, Carl, who everybody knows his background with uh, Carl Smith, yeah. you know, with uh, Hydro and, and with, uh, just everything he's done with uh, Fortis. Uh, then you have Jennifer Williams and, and a number of other really committed individuals. Uh, we're, we're trying our best. I think one of the, the big things about this is managing that balance between trying to get some kind of deal. So, and, and, and again, you know, this is something where it's it's incumbent to start the work now because we all know that 2041 is, is even though it's less than 20 years away and 20, that sounds like a long time, it's not. I mean, you need decades to plan for these types of things and everybody wants the best deal and we don't want to do anything that would harm the position we're in but you had to manage that by the public expectation that you know generally we haven't had a great track record in this and everybody wants to know where are you going with this um, I don't want to do anything I guess in my role that would harm those uh, negotiations or any of the conversations uh, 
But I guess what I can say is that there's been a tremendous number of positive conversations. And I, and I do think that, again, we look at this from nobody wants to go at a battle here where there's no win coming. I mean, Hydro-Quebec and the province of Quebec need to find a way there. And I think they've admitted as much that, look, we recognize the, the trauma of the past. They've said that, I mean, in the meeting with the premier. So, we'll, you know, it's still moving. Um, again, we're trying our best not okay. to do something that's going to jeopardize the negotiating position. That's so, basically the best I can say. We need a financial win, and I would suggest government needs a political win here. But they kind of feel like a little bit, they're distinct overlaps, but they're kind of two different things. Negotiations with the province of Quebec or Hydro-Quebec about what 2041 will look like is one thing. But for the general public to understand exactly what that means come 2041, it's just information for us. I don't know how that compromises any negotiations if you tell us, well, here's what changes in 2041. I just kind of spell it out because I think oh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it really means. Absolutely. So basically in 2041, I guess to the, the, the sum it up in the, the, the easiest way possible, certainly something that I can understand is that that's when we see the end of this, this contract that we all know, this uh, the upper Churchill contract. Now, but what people don't understand, and I think the biggest misconception that we have out there is that in 2041, all the responsibilities and rights and uh, rewards revert back to Newfoundland and Labrador, when the reality is that right now when it comes to that project, uh, Quebec itself still has, they are still a significant shareholder now of over 30%. So they still have some say in this. The other side of this is that Quebec right now has significant demands when it comes to power and when it comes to generation. So they absolutely want to find, I think there's a willingness of everybody to say, look, we don't need to wait till then to make these decisions. Let's find something that works now because everybody, Quebec, Newfoundland, and Labrador, and the the provinces in between, we all need increased capacity, especially to as we try to, in those to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, trying to get off coal, they recognize the power demands that are going to come. And we, obviously, Newfoundland and Labrador have a part to play in that. Just this week, we're talking about, you know, the Hydro-Quebec has that opportunity now to wheel down through Maine uh, with the Supreme Court case down there. So there's an opportunity for a win-win here. There is an opportunity for a political win. But I think the, the the biggest thing here is what makes sense in terms of meeting future demand and just a, how is it going to be done? Uh, because the other side of this comes with significant costs. So there's so yeah. many moving parts. And I do think you're exactly right. At some point, uh, I do think it's incumbent that uh, I, I think we need to start at the basics for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians for all of us to talk about what, where we are, why we've, how we've gotten here, and what is it we're trying to accomplish. I appreciate the time this morning. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what that uh, court ruling really means. Hydro-Quebec's energy surplus comes to a head in 2027. So they need this as much as we need this. So to find a way to satisfy a couple of wins, and it's not a zero-sum game, but we really need something to come of this, and I don't have time to talk about whatever this mythical beast of an Atlantic loop is, but that's a conversation <laughs> we can have in the future. appreciate the Time. Well, absolutely, and I enjoy this and think it's good that we can talk about these pretty big issues uh, on your show. So have a great weekend. All the best. You too. Take care. Thank you, Minister. Okay. Bye-bye. Sandra Parsons, Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology. It's time for a break. When we come back, let's talk a little uh, Royal Newfoundland Regiment Memorial High School Hockey Tournament for the first time ever, a women's division. Shara, uh, Gerard Brennan's coming up to talk about that. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon 
noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Well, the Royal Newfoundland Regiment Memorial High School Hockey Tournament is underway, well underway, out at the Paradise Double Ace Complex. It runs until Sunday. Join us on line number two, nine, number two to talk about the tourney is Gerard Brennan. Good morning, Gerard. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Excellent. Thank you. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Very good. Just here at the rink now, getting ready to go inside and uh, taking some of the hockey and, uh, and, and keep the tournament running. What's your attachment or association with the tournament, Gerard? My attachment is uh, I'm a retired member from the Royal Newfoundland Regiment. And uh, as you know, I guess a little bit of background first. I guess the tournament started in 2016, uh, Holy, School, Holy Spirit High School, and, uh, and the coach, John Lee, decided to, to start up a, a tournament for the high school teams locally and, and connect this to the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, the centennial of, of the Battle of Bowman of World War I. Uh, since that time, uh, I guess they, they reached out to the regiment for some help and assistance. Uh, we we jumped on board, and consequently, um, last year we incorporated a uh, we incorporated a not for profit corporation with a couple of veterans, and we've taken on now running this tournament, uh, uh, this uh, Royal Flam Red Memorial High School Hockey Tournament. I think it's great for the first time ever. There's a women's division. I can't remember the number of teams, maybe 12 in the women's or the female division. Uh, how's that part of the tournament going? Oh, that's going outstanding. Well, we got 28 teams total, 16 boys teams. We have 12 uh, female teams for the first time ever. Uh, I've met every one of the girls' teams as they came in through the door. Uh, they're just ecstatic about it and, and are having a, a, you know, a great time certainly playing in this tournament. Some of the players are actually reserve members of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment. Some of them, of course, have family relationship with uh, World War One veterans. So some of those stories and those family uh, attachments really bring an extra layer of uh, interest to the tournament. And it really does drive home the point that, you know, there's, there are some of these things that we have to preserve, the stories and the relationships, and I think this, that part of the story goes a long way. Absolutely. Uh, and like you said, we have a number of, uh, of um, members of the regiment that are currently playing in this tournament as high school students. Over the last few years, we've also had members of the regiment that were high school students playing in this tournament. And the family connections, as we all know, I mean, we say, you know, well over 90% of, of the families in Newfoundland are connected some way shape or form to the Royal Newfoundland Regiment in World War One, and, and today is no different. I mean, uh, the only difference today, certainly, Patty, is that we're now talking about the great-great-great-grandfather or great-great-great-uncle, so to speak. So, yeah, the families are connected, and it's great, and we, and we certainly are, are promoting them stories for sure. As you should be. I think that uh, it's just another compliment to an already great hockey tournament. I appreciate the time this morning, Gerard. Anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, I just like to say the tournament's on the go this weekend. There's going to be some great hockey. Uh, the uh, elimination series now starts this evening uh, after around uh, six o'clock. Uh, the out of town teams are here now on the ice. They're playing their round robin. They started yesterday, actually. Uh, so as soon as we get to the round robin, we'll start the uh, the uh, the elimination process. The trail of the Caribou Championship Series runs right through to Sunday. The girls' uh, championship game goes at one thirty on Sunday here at the Double Ice Complex. The boys goes at 3.30. Uh, some great hockey, so I just encourage people to go out and support these uh, young kids and, uh, and see some great hockey in the meantime. High school hockey was one of my favorite memories as a young hockey player myself, and I have a relationship with the First World War veterans, my grandfather, Steve Neri. I uh, appreciate the time, Gerard. Enjoy the hockey. Thanks very much, Patty. Appreciate it. Bye now. You too. Bye-bye.
All right, uh, try to get back on track with the break. So when we come back, we're going to be speaking with the Federation of Labor President, Jessica McCormick. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, pay equity legislation has been in place since October, but there are certain individuals and groups that think it needs to be overhauled or revamped. That includes the President of the Federation of Labor, Jessica McCormick, and she joins us on line number one. Good morning, Jessica. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Thanks. You? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm happy to talk a little bit about pay equity this morning. And uh, today is the day of mourning as well, Patty. So I wanted to acknowledge uh, that today and recognize the injured workers and those that have wor- uh, died in uh, workplace uh, accidents over the past year. Uh, today is an important day for them as well. And we echo that sentiment. There was just a, you know, the end of an investigation regarding someone who was killed on the job here very recently here in the province. So it does happen. And, you know, the message always has been we want people to come home safe to their friends Absolutely. and their family. So I'm with you on the National Day of Mourning. Uh, let's talk about this pay equity legislation. Yeah. So you say it's fallen short on a variety of fronts. You put forward some, I believe it was 10 recommendations. Where do we start? Yeah, I mean, well, I think where we start is the the flaws in the process that got us to the legislation that we have right now, Patty. Um, you know, we there was a lot of public kind of pressure and outcry uh, for provincial government to introduce some legislation um, throughout the past, you know, last year, and that led to uh, tabling of Bill Three uh, in late fall, and that came without any um, real consultation with stakeholders, not just the Federation of Labor, but other organizations. St. John's Status of Women Council has been very vocal um, about the need for strong. Uh, proactive pay equity legislation. Um, so, the, you know, when the legislation was passed fairly quickly in the House of Assembly, um, at that time we expressed, you know, frustration with uh, not having an opportunity to consult. Um, the Federation of Labor and Unions in the province have been doing, you know, research and advocacy around this issue for many, many years. You know, back to, um, you know, in NAPE's case in the in the late uh, 1980s around pay equity. So we have a, a huge stake in the process, and we were frustrated that we weren't able to have some input because I think that what resulted was legislation that's se- severely lacking and that's kind of why we put together this uh, research and this report that we've uh, shared with government and are talking about right now. So let's uh, talk about a couple of specifics where you think the shortcomings lie. Yeah, I think one of the, the biggest gaps in this legislation is that it doesn't uh, offer any pay equity protection for people working in the private sector. And we know that, uh, you know, particularly women working in some private sector jobs are facing the steepest um, pay gap. So the legislation as it stands right now only covers uh, the public sector. Um, and what we're seeing in our report is that we need to extend pay equity to the private sector as it has been extended in other parts of the country and through the federal pay equity legislation to ensure we can close the gender wage gap. Um, You know, some of the private sector jobs that we're thinking about, um, you know, that are dominated by women are some of the lowest uh, paying jobs, whether it's, you know, in the the kind of care economy um, or, uh, you know, in service, uh, the service industry, for example. So ensuring that we're trying to protect as many workers as possible through the legislation is important. Um, We're also looking for more specific kind of enforcement measures and and mechanisms that require employers to um, provide pay equity plans. So the legislation around pay equity and pay transparency, um, uh, and the pay transparency side of it, I guess, is related to the plans, doesn't really require employers to develop an outline of what steps they're going to take to address a wage gap if it, if it exists in the workplace. Um, and I guess the, the other point that I want to make, Patty, on it all, and there's 10 recommendations, and I'd encourage folks to take a look at our website and read through read through it all, um, is that trade unions haven't been at the table. Um, you know, we are actively involved in any negotiations or discussions with employers, be it 
provincial government or otherwise around compensation and wages for the people that we represent. Um, so it's critically important that we're at, uh, at the table when it comes to um, developing a pay equity process through provincial government um, and, and dealing with the enforcement of it on the, on the other side. So those are just three of the recommendations. Um, but I think the, the basic message from us is, you know, we're into consultation on the regulations right now, but provincial government really needs to maybe take a step back and take a look at what we've got in the legislation because I don't think that it, it effectively um, will address the gender wage gap in the province. And I don't think that we can settle for, well, it's better than nothing because, uh, because I don't think that it is. Are you thinking or suggesting that inside the private sector, let's say in the care economy or retail or mm-hmm. service, mm-hmm. that there are women doing the exact same job as men being paid less? Or is it simply the fact that in a female-dominated industry, say, for instance, the care economy, that yeah. they're just poorly paid, period? They're poorly paid, period, exactly. There's a little section of a report that talks about um, women working in women-dominated workplaces. A um, bit of convoluted language, but what it, that's talking about is the care economy, child care, retirement care facilities, places where it's mostly women that are working in that in that workplace. And in other pieces of pay equity and pay transparency legislation, for workplaces where it's mostly women working in the job, they provide for a, a proxy comparator. So you go outside the workplace, find um, a similar kind of role with similar duties, responsibilities, and compare with a, with a male um, to see if there's a there's a gap in the wages. Um, but generally, those are the jobs that are you know the least prioritized in our society, are some of the most important, um, and are the lowest paid. So, like if we really want to do something about the gender wage gap uh, here in this province, we need to think about what are the jobs that um, that we're not valuing right now, and how do we ensure that people are paid fairly? And we've been talking about this, you know, through the pandemic for sure. Um, but this is just another mechanism, I guess, through legislation to deal with it. Inside the public sector, it's much more easy to enforce and to monitor pay equity related matters because of the obvious. Government and their uh, union representatives would have all the information in front of them to ensure that this is being adhered to. Mm-hmm. How would we approach the private sector? Because there's absolutely unionized members working in the private sector. Not everyone in the mm-hmm. private sector is unrepresented. But for instance, understanding what a job description is, what are individual actually does. How do we deal with that in the private sector? That's one thing as I read through the document on your website is I wonder what that mechanism actually looks like. Because say for instance inside this company here, uh, we're non-unionized and everyone does a little bit of different kind of job and someone might be getting paid more whether it be a man or versus another man working in the same department for a variety of you know nitty gritty issues about their job responsibility, their job description. How do you envision yeah. this actually working? Yeah, some of that can be covered by having uh, good detail around what pay transparency looks like to, you know, ensure that employers are being clear um, and transparent about what the wages are, what job descriptions are in the workplace. And that can be introduced through pay transparency legislation, and it can be a requirement of employers to share that information publicly. But if it's not happening, say, for, you know, uh, not necessarily at your workplace, but, you know, I'm sure that there are some um, around the province where, you know, people may not be getting the information that they need, or they may have questions about what what their pay is relative to somebody that they're working alongside. So under a system where we have, uh, say, a, a pay equity officer, an independent body um, or an agency, oversight agency that exists, people could, you know, if they, if they don't have a union to go to um, or they feel that they're not getting any information that they need, they could go to this independent uh, proactive pay equity office to seek, you know, uh, support, uh, help, um, you know, uh, enforcement of of the law if it exists, um, or some sort of recourse that they can um, go through through an independent office. 
um, that could help them kind of enforce their rights, um, their pay equity rights, and that would be available for you know non-unionized people, people working in the private sector. Um, so that is kind of what we envision as a way to help uh, those workers who don't necessarily have a union in the workplace. Of course, you know I will say um, that having a union and being unionized is one of the best tools that people have to be able to negotiate that type of compensation. But we need mechanisms to exist for people that don't have uh, access to that. So th that's one of the ways that, that you could deal with it. Um, the legislation exempts uh, you know, contract workers. So that's, you know, another group of workers that wouldn't necessarily benefit right now and we need to try to bring into the fold. Um, it, it, like it is a, it is a complex uh, process that we need to, to take steps towards. Um, and I do think that there's just so many experts out there, Patty, a lot of people who have good experience and they really need to be at the table to provide input and develop this alongside government and not just be kind of consulted on the back end. Appreciate the time this morning, Jessica. Thanks for this. Thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Jessica McCormick. She's the president of the Federation of Labor. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the president of the Metro Minor Ball Hockey League. That's Steve Power. Morning, Steve. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Thanks for taking the call. No problem at all. What's on your mind? We've got our Metro Minor Ball Hockey League registrations going on, Patty. It's at the Venerable D.F. Burns Arena. Love it. It's a ball hockey for kids all over the metro area, ages 8 right up to 18. We've got different categories. Uh, we're going to be starting up the league just after the May 2-4 weekend. So registration is on now. Uh, people shouldn't delay. I know we got a couple of divisions. We're almost getting full already, and that's a really good sign for kids being active in the summertime and playing ball hockey, getting the skates off, but still working on those cross-training skills for hockey players. It's a great sport like that. You don't need any experience. There's minimal equipment required. It's a really good option for hockey players, new wannabe hockey players, new Canadians, you name it. Pretty much anybody can play this sport. It keeps a, a lot of the overlap regarding teamwork alive too, right? So, you know, I do think to be a well-rounded athlete, you play a variety of sports. But if you choose a bit of ball hockey over the summer, it really does come with a very similar approach to teamwork, which is always going to be key whether you're talking about ball or ice. Absolutely, and it's a, it's a real workout. I mean – you can't glide oh, yeah. on the concrete floor. Like you're stopped, you're stopped. And as far as your, your hands, uh, handling a ball is actually fairly tricky. One of the things that's really, really hard to do is run and shoot at the same time. The, the elite ball hockey players, which we got a lot of here in Newfoundland Labrador, yep. can do that. Um, one other thing we're really excited about, we've tried it a couple of times, but this year we're really putting a big effort into it, is launching a female program. So we've got a girls under 15 category and the girls over 15 category announced for this year and there's a lady that you know as well as i do her name is tracy haley tracy's going to be the face and eyes of the program at the rink she's going to be running the program on a day-to-day -day basis and tracy does an outstanding job and she's in it for all the right reasons with the kids tracy is a powerhouse i mean she's the uh, vice president of recreational hockey for the avalon celtics and she is non-stop uh, i mean really impressive woman and the effort she puts in for minor sports i, I love it she's she's terrific i'm a big fan of tracy's uh, absolutely so i'm really glad we got her yeah, no doubt. Big coup. So give us the one more time. Registration opens, and when does the league start and end? Registration is open now. It's on our website, the metrominorballhockey.teamsnapsites.com. Uh, registration will be ending probably around the 20th of May. Um, some divisions might fill up before then. So if you're, if you're interested, I would suggest people go to that website or check out our Twitter feed. 
um, as well. And one other thing, Paddy, I wanted to throw in there. I know you mentioned in your little pre-show this morning about Seamus O'Keefe. Yep. Um, that is a guy who was given and given and given to so many groups and so many different organizations in the province. If anybody got a few extra shekels in their pocket, by all means, go to that GoFundMe page. I, I can't stress that enough. If there's a guy who deserves it, a little help right now with Seamus, and he's a, he's a proud man. He probably won't ask himself, but I tell you what, if anybody can help out Seamus, now's the time to do it. And what a great cause and what a great guy. I just wanted to end on that note. Thanks. Yeah, and I echo those sentiments uh, entirely. Just a couple of very quick ones here. So what's the associated cost to play minor ball hockey this year? The price for the entire year is $250. It runs from the May 2-4 weekend. It'll go right up to the just regatta week. Generally, they play twice a week, and it's Mondays to Thursdays. We try to avoid weekends. Sometimes you may have to, but for the most part, we avoid the weekends and let people go out to the cabin and whatnot. Sounds great. You say that we've uh, produced a lot of great ball hockey players, and it's absolutely true. There was a very recent announcement of Team Canada's Masters team. That's 35-plus. Bunch of Newfoundlanders on it. Jeremy Bishop, Ryan Delaney. I don't want to leave anybody out, but Terry Ryan, Sparky, Chris Sparks, pardon me. Mike Dyke is on the team. So we've been competing on the international front. A lot of players from this province, and long has been the case. And you've been a big part of that international scene as well, Steve. Appreciate the time. Look forward to seeing you around. Thanks, Perry. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Steve Powers, the president of Metro Minor Ball Hockey. All right, let's take a break. We appreciate the patience of Marystown Mayor Brian Keating. He's up right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the mayor of Marystown. That's Brian Keating. Mayor Keating, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you today? Couldn't be better. How about you? Ah, well, I guess we could be better. I wouldn't be on uh, on the line, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully sometimes people call with some good news, but there is a couple of areas of concern in your community, and we appreciate your patience hanging on through the news. So you've got a, a town hall meeting coming up, or a public hall meeting coming up at 7 p.m. on Monday to talk about crime in the community. What are you seeing? Well, over the last uh, month or two months, we've seen a, uh, a great spike in uh, the crime rate in the Marystown, Bjorn Peninsula area with uh, breaking entries, home invasion, uh, drug overdosing stuff, and it's become alarming and alarming for the town and the residents and the business owners, you know. It's uh, it's actually now to the point that uh, residents of my area and the Bjorn Peninsula are scared, they're nervous, they're uncomfortable with what's going on in our region, and uh, you know, I give my hat off to the RCMP, they got the resources are minimal, and they've uh, been doing a great job trying to help out, but Unfortunately, a lot of these organizations are probably more equipped and more have more manpower than the RCMP. So this sounds like a bit of a, a silly or a simple question, but what are you hoping to achieve with a public meeting? Because the general public, if traumatized, probably don't want to get too intimately involved uh, themselves as individuals or families. So what is the hopeful goal of this meeting? Well, right now, uh, we're going to have the business owners there. We're looking at... Uh, you know, a crime prevention, maybe even a uh, a local service company coming in and doing security uh, on the nights around the town. We're going to see what business ideas come out. Because you understand, every time a business is broken into or have damaged, uh, the insurance uh, kicks in at some cases. But there's a lot of uh, unrecovered material. This, uh, for one instance, uh, we have one business owner contact me. Uh, the insurance told them that if they get broken into one more time, they're going to uh, 
cancer insurance or and so the last time he got broke in they wouldn't make a claim because they need insurance on their building in case of a disaster like flooding or fire or something and if you got no insurance you can't stay in business we just finished the opportunity uh present bay uh with Arnold's Cove, Argentia, and Arnold's Cove, and all the towns on the Bjorn Peninsula, and the economic development. Well, if businesses sees that the crime rate is so high in Marystown and the Bjorn Peninsula, that's a, a that's a deterrent. That's not an attraction, of course. So, the business and myself and the council town and all the other surrounding towns were all in the same boat. But this meeting Monday night is to come up with a strategy. Either it could be as easy as getting a. Uh, security company paid by the businesses and supported by the town. Uh, but we need to do something because RCMP need our help. The residents of the Bjorn Place need our help, and that's what we're going to do. we got to make a step forward. We can't wait no longer. Well, of course, home invasions would be a very violent crime. Are we seeing these home invasions, people armed, whether it be with knives or guns? Well, uh, the only two that I know of, and one was actually quite personal to me. I was a family member. They came in and uh, just went through their house, I guess, just looking for uh, something. Or we, it could be as simple as that they were mistaken lid down, but that's not that's not something I really uh, would uh, even fathom to be the true story. But, you know, that relates to the alcohol and drug abuse. And uh, the drug uh, is a crime, is a big thing in the area, too, the drug. So the domino effect... It comes from you need money for drugs and alcohol. You got to, You do whatever it takes to get that money to help your addiction. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, their addictions should not fall on the responsibility of homeowners fearing that they can't go to sleep at night, afraid they'll wake up with someone in their house. So uh, right now we are going to figure out something. We're going to work hand-in-hand hand with the RCMP. We're going to work hand-in-hand hand with the business to make sure that we come up with a plan. And I've even come forward to uh, donate uh, actually one of my company vehicles, my personal company vehicles, for three months at no cost to the business. We're going to put a uh, – that's going to come out on Monday night. We're going to put a company vehicle with a security badging on it. I talked with the RCP. They said it was a great idea. We're going to bring it forward Monday night. And we're going to hire someone to drive around all the businesses. Will it help? It may be a deterrent. Will it stop them? Of course it won't stop them because they're professionals as well. But we got to do something. Sitting and waiting don't work. So we're going to set forward a plan Monday night, and we're going to implement it, and it's going to happen. What does police presence look like in Marystown? Well, it's like uh, everybody says, oh, where's the police? Well, the police. So you remember RCMP all across Canada, especially in Newfoundland, we got a very large district. The district uh, detachment here in Marystown takes care right from Terrenceville to uh, Point May, Allenson, St. Lawrence. At one time, on uh, the Bjorn Plinson, we had a detachment in St. Lawrence. We had one in Grand Bank and one in Marystown. So it's like everything else. We caught some stuff with population. It goes by population. But unfortunately, the size has not changed. Population has changed. But the geography of the peninsula hasn't changed. So it's you can imagine if you only got five or six on duty at a time, you've got an accident in Grand Lapeer and a uh, domestic violence somewhere else on the peninsula. Uh, then leaves the rest of the police are quite vulnerable. So you can't blame it on the RCMP. We can blame it on population. We're not looking for blame. We're looking for a solution or a help to deter all these breaking entries, drug abuse, and home invasions. Uh, before we run out of time, Mayor Keating, uh, regarding the Canning Bridge, we know the province has committed to replace it. It sounds like an awful long time for the replacement, but who is allowed and not allowed to uh, traverse the bridge? Well, as everybody knows, uh, 
we set out to see if we could get motorcycles because of the weight limit, but uh, came back yesterday. Provincial government said no, no motorized vehicles. Uh, no matter you know, it's eight nine hundred pound motorcycle or because right now all that's allowed under a county bridge is pedestrian traffic, paddle bikes and scooters and so on. Anything that's not motorized. That now there is motorized paddle bikes that help you assist in your paddling. They're allowed, but no motorized vehicles that got to be registered. Appreciate the time, Sorny Mayor. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir, for your time. My pleasure. Take good care. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. It's Marystown Mayor Brian Keating. Uh, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Nikki. You're on the air. Hello? Hello. Hi, how are you? Couldn't be better. You? Uh, not so bad. Could be better, I suppose. Just like the mayor is probably calling for <laughs> because things are not so great. <laughs> What's going on? Um, so I'm just calling. I'm actually a business owner downtown St. John's on Duckworth Street. Um I'm just, I mean, I understand the picketers, you know, I support whatever they feel they need to do, but like they've been taking up our parking for over a week now. Like it's incredible that they don't, can't think, I don't know if they just don't realize it, but I mean, down there today, they're even like serving hot chocolate out of the back of a car in a parking spot. Like there's not one spot to park up on the side roads, on the main roads. And I know parking, they always say it's an issue downtown, but. I can't believe that they haven't considered other people's businesses downtown. You're not the first business. Yeah, you're not the first business owner that I've heard from on this front, too. The suggestion yeah. was maybe they should be parking in a bigger centralized parking lot and bussing them down to the picket lines as opposed to occupying uh, all those parking spots. Absolutely. Because, like, you know, some of them are coming in the store, which is great, you know, and they're on four hour cycles. So it's not like they're all coming at random times. Like, they have to take four hour shifts, you know? But it is a big problem. Even today, like, yeah, even today, you're you're just coming down. We got a big anniversary sale on to go the weekend, and there's like, there's like no, it's lined up. Like, I can't believe it. We always got parking on this side of Duckworth Street. We're really blessed for that. But it's just frustrating, I guess, to see that they can't realize that there's other people too trying to make a living. And I think it's just because they don't realize it. <laughs> I don't think if they knew. They would actually be doing it. I think they j- it just didn't pop in their head, you know? Well, we're, at, we're anticipating an update with the PSAC leadership early next week, and I'll put this on the list. That would be amazing, Patty. Happy to do yeah. it. Pardon? I'm happy to do it, Nikki. Not a problem. Yeah, thank you so much. You have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Yeah, I mean, people need a place to park, but it's it's a fair question to ask as to whether or not they've even considered the implications for the downtown businesses. I mean, it's enshrined in legislation and law and the Constitution that they absolutely have the right to pick it. No doubt about it. But maybe, just maybe, they hadn't considered possibly, you know, picking one of the bigger parking lots and busting the workers in and out as they take on their opportunities or their requirements of being on the picket line. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with the president of Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, Of course, a lot of work went into with the various working groups and the other members of MNL to produce a report last year regarding the possibility, the potential, or as uh, MNL says, the need for regionalization. The government has now said no. President Amy Cody, right after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president at MNL. That's Amy Cody. Good morning, Amy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. So a lot of work went into it. So how do you characterize your reaction when the government said no? And I'm referring Uh, to, of course, regionalization. Yeah, all I can say is disappointment at this point. Um, You know, we're not, I can't say we're surprised. 
um, you know, we did kind of, I mean, we've been working with the Department of Municipal and Provincial Affairs since the release of the report last year, last February. And, um, you know, leading up into the budget, you know, our renewed call for more information on regionalization, the budget was released little to no information on a regional approach, some, you know, regional buckets of money for some collaboration efforts and things like that. But um, so, you know, we weren't surprised. Um, but again, I, I, you know, I can't stress enough that we are disappointed. Do we happen to know exactly what kind of work went into uh, at the government level about the report? You know, do you know any models that they floated to see if they can't make something work? Because it seems a little bit hollow to me to simply say because of our uh, about population density and large geographic area that they couldn't figure out anything? Do you happen to know what was worked on, period? Yeah, well, that was one of the reasons why we, we've been talking about a regional approach for so long and that it would never be cookie cutter, that each region would be different. Um, so we spoke with MAPA um, early on after the report was released on, uh, you know, a specific model, a number of regions, the population basis for each region and what some possible costs could be um, for those regions. Like I said, that was early on. The detailed analysis that they did to come up with this conclusion, we have not been privy to. So, um, you know, had we been able to talk through some of those uh, suggestions or options, um, we may have been able to counter with some other suggestions or collaboratively come up with something that could possibly work, maybe come up with a couple of pilot scenarios or something like that that we could work on. Um, but again, weren't privy to the detailed analysis. We're um, going to continue, obviously, to work with the provincial government and, and uh, MAPA in particular um, to see what the next steps are and to get the details on why they feel that uh, following a regional services um, board model is a better fit. We're interested to see where that conclusion came from and how they feel that that may be better than a regional system, so to speak. I was a little surprised that they simply said no as opposed to, here's the models that we've come up with that we don't think work, so here you go, MNL, take this and do some work in addition to what we've done to see if we can figure it out. But it just came down to a no. The one thought that people have offered as a negative pushback is simply about taxation. And, you know, if you're in an LSD or non incorporated area, they said this fundamentally. I don't want to pay more taxes for no increase in services. What's long been the answer to that? Because that's a sensible pushback. If I'm in one of those areas and I have a certain level of tax or fees that I pay, I don't want to pay more and not get anything else in, in addition to. Yeah, and, and Patty, we've talked about that on numerous occasions. My question has always been, if not this, what is the cost of the status quo? What is it costing to maintain what you're maintaining now? What is the cost of doing nothing now? And what does the cost of doing nothing now mean down the road? Like, at some point, I mean, if municipalities fold... They become the responsibility of the provincial government. Just because a council steps away and they no longer have uh, a municipal council running the operations doesn't mean that everybody packs their bags and, you know, it becomes a ghost town. We see that all the time. I mean, you look at Galtus, for instance, you know, with the vote there on, on uh, resettlement. I mean, people don't want to leave their communities. So, you know, if 
a council folds or if uh, an area becomes unincorporated, they're then the responsibility of the provincial government. And running a municipality, we know what it costs to do that. Does the provincial government want that on their books as well? Because that's where it will head, you know, if, if this is the approach that they're taking. The regional services model, I mean, the regional services boards were created, you know, with the intention um, and the sole uh, the sole purpose for waste management and they're based on cost recovery models so if they're looking at cost recovery model well then there's going to be obviously they're looking at a revenue source or something that'll maintain this regional service that they're looking at implementing moving forward so we have tons of questions um, and our seat at the table is more important now than ever and we appreciate that seat at the table and that's why it's so important that we're there because we need to be there to ask those questions and to work through the problems and find solutions together the $500,000 for a shared services approach, it sounds like a lot of money, but it's really not. And what is that money even going to attempt to achieve? Yeah, and again, more questions. So that's what we want to know. Like, tell us, how is this funding going to be used? What is it going to be used for? How are you going to select the projects that this money will be uh, assigned to? What is that process going to look like? How do we apply for those funds? Again, just questions upon questions. Yeah, and some answers would be pretty helpful, but it doesn't seem like there's many forthcoming. We're going to reach out to the minister's office to help us understand exactly what work went on, where they identified very specific problems uh, inside their inability to come up with a manageable model. So anything else you want to say this morning while we have you, Amy? Uh, again, you know, we are working for our membership, um, our partners, the professional municipal administrators. They are working for their membership. We will be getting together next week in Gander, um, you know, to celebrate at our, our uh, municipal symposium all of the great work that we do every single day to service our, our residents and to take care of our communities. Regionalization is going to be on that agenda, was planned to be on that agenda. We We'd hope to be delivering, you know, some different news. Um, we'll reframe our messages. Hopefully next week we will have some more information uh, from municipal and provincial affairs that we can pass on to our membership. Uh, but again, you know, it's, I mean, I guess I'll end it by saying that we asked for um, movement on regionalization. I guess we got it. So, you know, there's movement that's positive. Um, at least we're not stuck now in a in a holding pattern. Um, we see that they have an idea and a concept, so now we'll continue to work with them to see how this is going to roll out, how they feel it's going to work, and just do the best we can to support our members going forward to make sure that they have all of the information. I guess one of the other things, too, Patty, um, is the assessment tool, the self-assessment that they're going to be sending out to communities. Um, you know, we, we know self-assessment is healthy, um, and we know, you know, that we have to start that process. It's a design tool to help us plan. Um, but we need to know, uh, you know, what's going to be in that assessment tool. 
what are the types of questions they're going to be asking? What types of information um, are they hoping to get from those assessments from the communities? Is it going to be province-wide? Are we going to be including not just incorporated municipalities, but the LSDs, the UIAs? And, of course, our Indigenous communities as well need to be included in those evaluations. So, um, you know, how are they going to tabulate all that data? And that's, again, just the questions that we have that we're looking forward to sitting down with the department um, and with the provincial officials and just really moving forward with a plan. Appreciate the time this morning, Amy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. MNL President Amy Cody, let's go to line three. Don Connolly, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly, and how are you today, my friend? Couldn't be better. 726-5975. You still got it, buddy. It's it's been a while. It has so. Don, how you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay and uh, and uh, still involved, of course, with the blind and visually impaired uh, community, Patty. And, uh, uh, of course, that's why I'm phoning again, uh, to uh, to let people know out there, the, uh, any blind or visually impaired person, adult, uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, that uh, we do have an adult camp for the blind coming up at Lime Maxim's camp, uh, August 13th to the 19th. And... Um, we're looking forward to meeting new uh, uh, new uh, new friends. Uh, uh, we uh, we have advertised uh, through the CNIB and let people know about the uh, about the camp. But we don't have an awful lot of applications in as yet, Patty. So we're going back out on the open line to be, because we know uh, the listenership that you've got uh, to be able to let people know that we are uh, uh, going to have a camp this year. The first one in three or four years now. Um, uh, so we want to encourage people to come on board out at the Adult Camp for the Blind. There's an opportunity to meet other people that are blind and visually impaired, to learn about uh, how to be able to get more independence, uh, how to do things as a blind or visually impaired person. Uh, we get involved with sport and recreational programs as well as uh, rehab services to pe- teach people how to use a white cane properly and all sorts of other stuff, Patty. It's a tremendous opportunity uh, for people to work through different issues they have around their vision loss and uh, we encourage people to come on out and uh, join us in a fun-filled week uh, of activities uh, where they can just meet other people and uh, and have a lot of fun along the way. What goes on at the camp, Don? Oh, well, we we've got different sport and recreational activities from goalball to uh, to. Uh, uh discus shot put and and uh, things of that nature on a on a more athletic level as well as uh, just uh, bean toss and uh, horseshoe tosses and and a bit of putting with golf and uh, uh, things of that nature uh, we have uh, uh, lots of opportunities for some dancing at night and and that uh, we have a talent show um, just some walks, uh, nature walks in the in the general Maxim's camp area. Um, so uh, we keep people pretty active. You can be as active as you want, and or you can just lay back and and enjoy uh, just uh, relaxation and, and socialization time. Uh, there's a swimming pool there as well, uh, so we do do swimming. We have a bit of bingo and and uh, whatever uh, whatever people are involved with and interested in doing. Um, there's airports out there and pools 
tables. If people are interested, we can show them how to throw a dart or how to shoot pool as a blind or visually impaired person. Um, so there's a lot of activities out there. All you got to do is show an interest, uh, Patty, and uh, and we can get them on board. Um, we do want to let people know that we don't have a nurse on site this year. We usually did in the past, but you know the difficulty it is of getting any nurses these days. So we are having to have people, if they're not able to take care of themselves, then they will need to bring an attendant along uh, or a home care worker. But, um, you know, there's a lot of activities to be able to keep people happening uh, and, and active. And uh, most importantly, uh, what goes on is learning from others about how they handle uh, blind and visually impaired issues, uh, Patty, and that's that's the big thing, you know. People think, well, I, I can't do that, I'm blind. Well, we can usually show you a way that you can do it, despite the fact that you have vision problems. Uh, and uh, just learning that it is possible makes the difference. Uh, Don, where do I get an application? Uh, you can uh, contact me directly at uh, 726-5975, as you said, or uh, the camp coordinator uh, this year uh, is a lady by the name of Pat Dwyer, and she's uh, she's the, um, uh, we reached out to the Lions community to get some help uh, this year, uh, Patty, and uh, Pat Dwyer is the president of the Cornerbrook Lions Club, and she stepped up to the plate and is now the coordinator of the camp this year, uh, so uh, people can also phone Pat. Uh, her phone number is 709, of course, 634-0912. That's 634-0912. And uh, we, can, uh, we can get you out an application form. Uh, we need to try to get the, these applications in now as quick as possible. Um, the cost of the camp is $330 for the week, uh, Patty. And uh, basically, uh, what we do is usually go to the Lions Clubs in the community. And the Lions, as you know, are the Knights of the Line. And uh, uh, they step up to the plate all the time uh, uh, for us with the Adult Camp for the Blind and for a lot of issues around the blind and visually impaired uh, situations. So the Lions Clubs across the province are more than willing to uh, help out where they can to sponsor people. So if uh, you got a Lions Club in your community, um, they they might be able to assist you. If you if they can, uh, we can usually find you a sponsorship uh, Lion Lions Club somewhere. So we'd encourage uh, Lions Clubs out there that are not sponsoring right now and that do have uh, some monies to assist with the Adult Camp for the Blind to also reach out to us uh, at the Adult Camp for the Blind Committee. Uh, again, um, and I'm Lion Don Connolly, by the way. Uh, I am a Lion, um, and or Lion Pat uh, Dwyer, and uh, we can help you uh, to uh, sponsor a blind or visually impaired person to to get a lot of good service, recreation and rehabilitative services at the summer camp this year. Appreciate the time, Don. Good luck with it. Pat, thanks so very much. I do appreciate it. And keep up the good work. You're doing a great job. You too, Don. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, self-checkouts. That's a good one. And Michelle wants to talk about the parking issues downtown as well. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Michelle. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How are you doing? Good. I missed your preamble this morning, and I start every day normally, 
I need to hear you say, well, all right, and I missed it this morning. <laughs> if I could make it a ringtone, I would. That would be my ringtone of choice. Some people give me a really hard time about it, and it came upon really innocently. The very first show I ever did on Nightline, that's the thought that popped in my head when I pressed the button was, well, all right, and <laughs> it hasn't stopped since. But I appreciate you tuning in. Thanks a lot. Well, I just wanted to talk about this morning, uh, the caller, the, the last caller before your, I guess, last second last break. Um, she called in about the parking downtown and about the uh, the PSAC uh, protests that are going on or they're picketing downtown and they're taking up parking. Mm-hmm. Well, I have an issue with that because what happens if they don't get to continue with remote work and they have to go back to work? Where are they going to park? Well, that's fair enough, but I guess over the course of the last few years, with remote work available, now all of a sudden with everybody required to appear on the picket line, that the parking situation has changed dramatically just in the last two weeks. I guess that's the concern. Yeah, if they don't get to continue, though, with remote work, they're going to be taking up spots regardless. So they're mand- I mean, I think that, you know, some people can go to the building and probably are downtown. Yep. Um, but if you have the choice to do remote work, I mean, you don't have a car payment, you don't have to burn the gas, parking spots downtown aren't cheap. Nobody really wants to go back to the office to work, and it's been working fine from home, I'm sure, over the last two and a half, three years since COVID started. I mean, but if they aren't, if they don't get that in their contract, aren't they going to have to go back to work downtown? I know two people that work in the Sir Humphrey Gilbert building, and neither one of them drives to work because of the nightmare of parking, not only getting a spot in the first place, but then having to repeatedly go back and and feed the meter. That was years ago, of course, when it was all straight up with uh, coin-operated machines, but they love it. They either get dropped off or they're part of a carpool, and so they've avoided parking because of those two approaches. So I assume the newfound parking concern is that all of a sudden things changed dramatically uh, here in the last two weeks. But you're right. If remote work doesn't continue, they are going to have to get to work somehow, and for many people that will be the convenience of driving themselves in and out. I'm sure people on the picket line are still doing that option there. I would think so. Yeah. That kind of thing. I know it's a big, a big change right now for Uh, downtown uh, businesses. I'm sure it's bringing in money downtown right now as well. You know, they've got to eat. They want to go get their coffee, their pizza, whatever. Or they're, you know, window shopping or going in the shop if they can afford to now. Now they're on strike. But yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's a complaint that really I understand parking has changed down there, but if they don't get to go back, if they have to go back to work, Parking is going to change for the future. And, I mean, everybody that goes to work, I mean, how many does the building hold down there? I don't really know, but hundreds anyway. I'm going to say about 400 people the building probably holds. Yeah, sounds about right. 450 maybe. And how many employees do we have that work for, even for Canada Revenue Agency? Probably 1,500, 2,000 people in Newfoundland. I suppose. Well, CRA nationally, I think the number was 34 or 35,000. So notionally, I would imagine we have somewhere in the neighborhood between 1,000 and 1,500, yeah? Yeah, so they've all got to park somewhere, even if they carpool. Parking is going to be, and and they're not all parking downtown now because they're picketing all over. Yeah, one of the biggest picket lines is right there on uh, Empire Avenue outside of the tax building, yep. Yes, exactly, and they're on Topsail Road, they're on Brookfield Road. I mean, they're not all downtown, but they do all have to go back to work if they don't get to do remote work, which I hope they do. And there's a lot of people that are 
you know, it works well for them. And if it's, if it's worked well in the last almost three years, why can't it continue to work for them? There's going to be an awful lot of changes, an awful lot of people in, in a hard way if they have to go back to the building. Yeah, and people got hired during COVID. You know, and they, they, they were hired to work from home. And now they're being told, well, no, you can't do that anymore. So now you have to go out and buy a new car or buy a car or find a way to get to work. And now childcare becomes a bigger issue. I don't know. I just I hope they get what they're what they're looking for. I think they're they're well deserved. And uh, yeah, just the remote work. I think the last poll I saw. Well, for this lady. Yeah, the last poll I saw. The majority of Canadians want government employees back to work. It's just that sentiment of people don't think you're actually being productive or doing your job if you're at home and able to, you know, take a break to watch the stories or go for a walk or have a nap or whatever the case may be. We should be measuring productivity. If I'm a union leader on this front, it's not about whether or not it's been working for me and I don't want to go back to the office. I'd be using the old savings to taxpayers. That would be the line that I would be repeating and yelling at the top of the mountains because I don't know how many people have factored that into this part of the conversation. If the federal government was saving hundreds of millions of dollars on commercial real estate because they didn't need that type of office space, that's an argument that I think would resonate in Canadians' ears. Oh, you mean I can save a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, or if not billions? Well, maybe there's something I can reconsider on this front, but they've made the argument about, well, it's worked for me, and it's work-life balance, and it's not having to drive, and you know all those types of things, but I think that's savings one that would probably be what might change the tune of some Canadians who say go back to work anyway yeah I, I would think that with with these agencies like Canada Revenue they have ways to measure productivity oh, and, sure. and I'm sure that you know if anybody's not being productive at home they have the managers or whatever that can actually say okay well you're not on the phones during this time what's going on and deal with the productivity that way I'm sure that uh, um, an organization of that magnitude has ways to measure productivity over the last few years. So, you know, go ahead. I was just going to say I appreciate the time. I thought you had come to the end of your thought, but you go ahead and conclude and we'll say goodbye. No, that's it. I just, you know, for downtown, if they don't get remote work, then parking is not going to change. And I really hope that they all get what they're looking for and this ends soon. Appreciate the time. Thanks for this, Michelle. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, another one before the break. Let's go to line number one. Mac, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better. Bye. You? All right. Bye. Um, I'm going to try my very best, Patty, to uh, confirm your rules about uh, language and so on, but frustration sometimes gets the better you, you know? Yeah. Try to watch your language, but go right ahead. Oh, I will. Um, yesterday, I had a very, very maddening experience uh, I'm disabled now I, I walk with a cane and a walker and it's very difficult getting around so when I get out it's a treat for me to get out and do anything and going into these stores now where they have you got to do your own checkout and uh, they only have one cashier open and there's a lineup as long as the store I mean it's maddening can't they do something to uh, I mean, I know they want to make profit and they want to double and triple their profit, but oh God, uh, it's maddening. And finally, after the third store in a row, I said to the supervisor, I guess she was, I said, you don't even have a chair here for people to sit down. She said, well, if you wanted a chair, why didn't you ask for one? 
mean, <laughs> Mac, are you unable to use a self-checkout or just don't like them, or? Well, it's difficult standing, you know. I mean, you, here you are with, uh, and it doesn't make any difference whether it's self-checkout or regular checkouts. There's lineups, but I, I do have uh, um, an opinion, uh, uh, I guess. I'm against self-checkouts to a degree because they take up jobs, you know. Yeah, and I mean, automation is becoming more and more a reality and more and more uh, workers are being displaced by them. I've long thought that we should actually tax uh, uh, self-checkout, maybe not to the level we would have taxed the individual based on the rate of pay, but I think there should be a fee or a tax associated with self-checkout because it does displace a worker. Now, people are employed by making those machines and um, the maintenance on those machines, but that's not necessarily the same thing. So, Mac, how do you accommodate your own needs uh, when you want to stand in line for the grocery store versus stand at a self-checkout? Well, Paddy, first of all, um, media will tell you now that the number of seniors and disabled people is increasing quite rapidly. And these stores now need to really accommodate people with disabilities, you know? Mm -hmm. They need to have a checkout and to have a chair. I mean, you go in a supermarket right now and there's no place for you to sit down. Nowhere. And you try it tomorrow and look yourself. And these things... Uh, no matter where you go, when it's against the disabled, I think. You know, so uh, it's very difficult to uh, maintain a civil attitude. And, and I know these people don't need to be jumped on by the general public. I mean, they, I know they're doing their job and they're doing what they're told. And management won't get out in the front lines, I guarantee you, because they wouldn't take the abuse. But, uh, you know, I mean, an ordinary person can't help but get abusive when you're faced with that every minute, no matter which store you're going to. I appreciate the time this morning, Mac. And, uh, you know, retail outlets have to understand what challenges their shoppers face when they come in and have whatever support required. Because I'm sure, and maybe it's a bit of a smart-alecky smart way to put it, that boy, if you wanted to chair, why didn't you ask? But, you know, you can recognize probably quite easily as a floor supervisor or, or what have you that someone might be struggling one issue or another, reaching something on the shelves or needs to uh, be accommodated with a chair. And, you know, getting out in front of it's probably really great customer service. So I'll keep you coming back. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Mac. Last comment to you, sir, before we go. Uh, well, the other thing I wanted to mention to you, Patty, is that you said about people who work with the, uh, these various institutions. Also, other customers are very helpful. You just mentioned about not being able to reach for or get something off the shelf. I found that fellow shoppers are a lot more helpful than the employees themselves. Anyway... That's all I want to say. I was going to organize maybe a protest and, and uh, have people in wheelchairs and walkers and canes stand outside some of these places, but they don't have chairs for to sit there and protest. So. <laughs> Thanks for this, Mac. Take good care. Thanks, Pat. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, go ahead and take a break. Mark's got an interesting one. He wants to talk about the role of municipalities in recruiting health care pros. Some municipalities, for instance, Bonavista, have dangled out some municipal support in that effort. Uh, Mark, right after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Mark, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. I want to weigh in on this topic of municipalities getting involved in recruitment of doctors. 
Uh, first of all, I think municipalities got to stay in their lane and basically water, sewer, garbage, recreation. Now, I got no problem with a municipality. If you've got a recreation facility and you want to give some healthcare professionals a free membership, that's not going to cost the taxpayers a lot of money as an incentive. But when we're talking about cash incentives, uh, I'm, I'm against it because what we're going to have is the municipalities that can afford to do that or those who are silly enough to borrow money to do it is going to get doctors. And what, what does that say for the rest of the municipalities that can't afford to do that? And if our health care is going to deteriorate to the point where we got to have municipalities involved in getting doctors, there's a problem. I think the provincial government is strictly responsible. The health care corporations are, are responsible for recruiting doctors in our hospitals, in our communities. And that's where the responsibility should stay. I think municipalities should stay away from that role because it's, it's very expensive. I don't, I don't yeah, dispute the overall point, but of course, those mayors and council members would be thinking, well, with so many citizens coming to us wondering what we can do, if there's something we can do, maybe we will. I think it does create an unfair playing field out there, though, because we cannot have the circumstance where a municipality with the resources ends up getting the doctor versus the assessment done by the health authority itself and then putting doctors where they can, when they can, because I think I get your, your ultimate point here but we could create a real problem down the road for smaller communities who simply don't have the resources municipalities for me their role is clear dealing with dr megan hayes who's the uh, uh deputy minister responsible for recruitment and retention of healthcare workers is to help paint the picture of why your community is an attractive spot for a potential doctor or a nurse practitioner or a licensed practical nurse whatever the case may be that much i think they should all be actively doing but beyond that i think i totally get where you're coming from Yeah, I know when I was on council, I I had that dilemma. We were talking about what to do. And when we were talking about uh, memberships to recreation, that I supported it. But we got way too far with our our incentive programs with the town of Steenville, as an example. And in good conscience, I couldn't vote for uh, giving doctors, uh, you know, uh, $1,000 a month for vehicle allowances, giving doctors uh, education reimbursements. Uh, And and the other thing we got to remember, when you talk about uh, a hospital, a hospital, you need doctors. But the janitors are just as important as the doctors. And, uh, you know, we got the highest paid individuals in the community getting incentives. And I couldn't justify it when I was on council to vote for a motion that would do that because really the average taxpayer is struggling to pay their taxes. And I couldn't see taking that tax money and and putting it out to give uh, big financial incentives and right now I don't know what our town would be paying out but I would assume it's over $200,000 and we got infrastructure in the town that needs to be taken care of Uh, so to me I I, I couldn't do it uh, three years ago when I was on council and I think the Minister of Municipality should come out and and be clear that that shouldn't be allowed to happen with taxpayers money because it's 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 and I know everybody wants doctors that that's a that's I I get that point but to me uh, using taxpayers money uh, to to support uh, bringing doctors and, and big recruit incentives is, is wrong. What do you think of the incentive also that was floated in Bonavista about uh, a service building lot for a dollar, which isn't given away any tax dollars, but does indeed come with some lost revenue down the road? What do you make of that one? Uh, I would be okay with giving a, a building lot as long as they paid their taxes on what the home they put there. 
I have no problem with that because if it's if it's a land that the town owns, it's not a, it's not taking taxpayers' money. What I, what I was against when I was trying to make that decision at council is we're taking the taxpayers from people that are struggling right now uh, with the cost of living to pay their taxes, and then we're taking that and giving like one example is a thousand dollar vehicle allowance to a doctor who's already making probably three figures. I, I, morally and ethically, I found that that was wrong. I, I agree with getting doctors. I think we all need the doctors, but it's, it's a national problem. And I think it, the, the, the burden's got to lay where it lays. It lays with the provincial government and the Minister of, of, of Health. And uh, so there are some small incentives municipalities should get into, but when it comes to taking taxpayers' money to give financial incentives, I think you've got to stop the line there. I understand the point. Where were you on council, Mark? I was on council the previous term, about three years ago. In Bonavista? No, in town of Steenville. Oh, in Steenville. Okay, I was just... Uh... Yeah, so Ste- Steenville has them incentives in place for now for a couple of years. Uh, uh, $1,000 uh, vehicle allowance for doctors. There was We pay their recreational fees. We pay, I think, their fees for registering their, their annual fees. And I think there's some incentives as well for uh, up to $50,000 for new doctors for educational reimbursement, which I thought was really going overboard with it all. But uh, my understanding is it's... Uh, it's, it's it's out there. Probably someone on, on the current council can can talk about how successful it is. But I know it is costing hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I couldn't vote for it three years ago. And when I heard more people talk about more municipalities wanting to get involved, I think the minister of uh, municipal affairs should just come out very clear and say this is not a role for tech. Now, if you want to give incentives, like you said, a building lot for a dollar, you want to give some recreational memberships. But as far as taking the taxpayers' money and giving that financial incentives, I think we got to stop the line or, or we're, we're setting up a two-tier system in health care. Mark, I appreciate this uh, very quickly. As a former councillor, a man with his air to the ground in Stephenville, hearing anything about the airport? Uh, the airport uh, is, uh, no, uh, to me, it's, uh, uh, when I was on council, I don't know if you remember, but I was the only one that voted against all the money that was being wasted in the airport. Uh, it, it's, it, you know, uh, I, I read things like, you know, we're uh, two years. So, you know, Mr. Carl Diamond came in our town uh, two years, uh, three years ago, during a municipal election, I might add, uh, with creating 2,000 jobs April of two years ago. And here it is, April, two years later, no jobs. And recently, I think the council approved uh, covering all the costs at the, at the airport at $32,000 a month until it's done. But last July, at the Remembrance Parade, the mayor said it was sold and everything was going to be good. So I don't know. I, I, I think CBC, I asked when I was on council, did the uh, did the uh, airport corporation do their due diligence and do a check on, on, the, uh, on the Diamond Corporation? And the answer I got back was, yes, they were a solid financial company. I think CBC was very due diligent in what they've done, and they, they determined that uh, that company doesn't have the financial resources to even do not only a $500,000 expansion at the airport, but a billion dollars. So I, I'm, I'm not very optimistic that uh, this is going to go forward. Yeah, I didn't know anything about the $32,000 a month. I do know they voted recently for another $50,000 to go to the airport authority, and the only councillor voting against that again is Lenny Tiller. Yeah, and Lenny's in the same position I was in when I first got on council. I'm probably one of the few councils that read all the reports. So here's how funny it goes. The, the, the first report when I got on council was from an a aviation consultant saying, don't go for passenger service. Uh, try to become the best fuel station in the sky. 
So it was a three-year plan, and in three years, uh, it was supposed to be financially viable. So council that before us committed to $750,000 to do that plan, and we had two years left. In two years' time, instead of financially breaking even, the airport was still losing a half a million dollars a year. Yeah. I, I led the charge saying, this is enough. we got to stop. This airport is a, is, is a, a biggest drain on taxpayers' money. But the, the mayor was adamant that he knew more about aviation and uh, that the COVID was going to actually uh, create an opportunity for passenger service in Steamboat. I presented all the facts to council that the COVID was actually going to kill the airline industry and that it would be five years before it recovered. And and that's exactly what happened. And we, we put, I'd say, uh, at least in the last six, seven years, there's over $1.5 million cash gone into the airport. But in total, $6 million of cash has gone into the Steamboat Airport to keep a failing enterprise open. Another example, when when the airports were divested, government said don't get involved in funding airports, municipalities. And our municipality didn't didn't listen. Several mayors and their leadership forged money to the airport to keep it open because it's emotional. Everybody wants the airport open. I mean, uh, we, we were promised at council t- uh, three years ago that we would have uh, two flights today, seven days a week. We invested $1.5 million, and today we got no flights, zero. Zero flights at the airport. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for this, Mark. Yep. Okay. Take bye. care. All right. Bye-bye. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Tenley. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Good, sir. You? Good. Just going to take up speak here. Okay. Yeah, long-time listener. Or, sorry, long-time tweeter, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, I just want to chat about Amy Cody today. It's uh, I, I, I just don't understand why she takes it so personal when, when it seems like she takes it so personal anyway and gets too involved in what she shouldn't be involved in in the first place, in my opinion. Um, what's that? Uh, the regionalization. I mean, she's that whole uh, organization, you know, municipalities of Newfoundland and Labrador, they're they supposed to represent the incorporated municipalities. So I just don't understand why she even thinks it's her responsibility to push this when, you know, they're the ones that want it sort of thing. Well, in defense, I suppose, of Amy Cody, regionalization and the thought and the concept of and the work towards it had precedes her tenure as the uh, uh, president of MNL by years. I mean, this has been mm-hmm. on the go for an awful long sure. time. Uh, you know, other than MNL, what would be the body doing some of the legwork before they present something to government? Uh, to me, it sounds like the obvious choice for an entity to take on this task. I don't think so. I think th- I don't think they have the information. I mean, their whole board of directors is from like I say, incorporated municipalities, cities, or towns. So I don't think they have the understanding. You know, yes, you can say they do the consultations and the, you know, they do uh, reports and things like that. But when you don't have the real-life understanding and and listen to the opposing point of view, just trying to push your own, it just doesn't give much uh, in the way of, to me, uh, proficient conversation. And to get back to your question, I think it should be the government's initiative personally because you know um, they're the ones that are making these decisions I don't think there should be an agenda pushed to them to try and um, you know from a from a position of power when the LSDs for example don't necessarily have a group similar to defend their stance against MNL so it's sort of like they're pushing their stance uh, while they can when there's no defense in place 
to, you know, um, sort of go against the government's mind. I know that MNL, of course, represents those 275 incorporated municipalities, but I do think it got off to a rocky start by not including LSD reps in the working groups, because that would have been a much more positive step forward to see if we can get some answers to some of the questions that are justifiably being asked by residents and or leadership in LSD. So I get why they say they couldn't because they don't represent those groups, but I think that would have made for a much more efficient process. Definitely. And I think the cost savings side of it, I mean, I think they're just looking at it from the cost savings from the provincial government. I mean, yes, the, the most common thing is that LSDs say um, it's going to be more for us or what or whatever, more taxes for less services. But, uh, you know, the cost savings, yes, there will be some cost savings in the provincial government. But when you're talking about councils in these regions and, you know, plowing the roads and maintaining things like that or whatever responsibilities the region might have, those costs that the provincial government had, they don't disappear. They just go back on the backs of the of the new regions, and to, they're they're not actually reduced. They're actually more fees, in my opinion. Um, you know, when you talk about operating budgets and that, but as an LSD, you don't get much. For, you don't get really get any in the way of operating budgets besides percentages for grants and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, the thought that you know things are working okay today. But I think the next obvious question is, what about tomorrow? Because population trends and aging demographics, at some point, whether we see municipal leadership and councils disband and then they're inherited, the responsibilities are inherited by the province, or LSDs or unincorporated areas that would follow these population trends, which are undeniable, and the information is out there for people to have. So I don't think that question was asked to the extent it should be because yes things might be working okay today but i think the looming problems are down the road and as i say quite often when we simply react when the problem is presented in full is that it's more expensive it's more chaotic and it becomes much more difficult and unwieldy so i don't know if that was given enough careful consideration i don't know what system would work in your area or any other area in the province something that might be appropriate on the great northern peninsula might not work on the southwest coast which i'm sure is the complication Mm -hmm. that they were unable to overcome but I think the snapshot down the road doesn't look quite as good as it does today. No, I agree with that 100%. I mean, you have an aging population with, you know, um, with no work in these regions. But, I mean, if you look at just our provincial, say, electoral districts, uh, you, you just they're just those districts alone, if that's what we went by, for example, or even if it was smaller, there, there's just not enough... Um, representation or there couldn't be enough representation for what we could be able to pay for, um, you know, to, to efficiently um, improve these communities or, or try and promote these communities for, you know, further habitation instead of basically, it almost seems like the regionalization is, it almost seems like it's a, a committee to to phase out these communities rather than try and help them. I appreciate the time and the uh, tweets. One last thing, sure. uh, uh, I, I, don't, I, I think she should remove herself from the conversation because she, last I know, she is actually employed with the provincial government. Is that incorrect, you know? I don't think she is. Well, I don't know her to be. I know she's a councillor on Grand Falls, Windsor. I didn't okay. know that she okay. worked for the province. I, I don't know that one way or the other. And I, I, I know that, uh, I mean, I know the provincial government has made their stance, you know, most recently that we're aware of uh, against it or not for their position. So, but but in the long term, I think she should remove herself from the conversation if that is true. I heard that she was the employed with the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. She could be. I don't know. I can find that out yeah. quite simply or quite easily. Uh, but, like, if you say the province should be the ones doing the work, then we can rest assured that the province will not do the work because they already said no to the body of work that was produced by MNL. So if we leave it up to the well, province and the yeah, conversation is over. Yeah. 
that's right. I mean, just like anything, you leave it to the province. It won't happen until, you know, way past when it should. But I think, well, before I let you go, I think uh, decentralization should be looked at rather than regionalization. And, and and I think if they introduce the LSDs into the conversation, we could have an actual, um, um, you know, proficient talk on, on how that could could happen rather than regionalization. Appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Uh, thanks, Patty. Take you care. Care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking PSAC and the current strike in its second week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament, elected in and serving the folks of St. John South Mount Pearl. He's the Minister of Labor, Seamus O'Regan. Minister O'Regan, you're on the air. Patty, good to talk to you. Just um, right off the top, I wanted to acknowledge that today is the National Day of Mourning. It's a day I'm thinking of come by chance and thinking of uh, uh, workers who have lost their jobs or been or lost their lives or have been injured on the job. Uh, and it's a day when we recommit ourselves to better occupational health and safety and looking after one another and those who work hard for us. So important day. I just wanted to acknowledge that off the top before we get into it. Here, here. Uh, let's move off to the PSAC strike that's ongoing. Of course, we're in our yeah. second week. Uh, as of April 1st, uh, members of Parliament got a pay raise. It's their fourth pay raise since the pandemic began. So on average, uh, parliamentarians be taking home into an additional $15,700 is the number that I've seen floating around. Given that fact and the demands of your employees, how do you square that circle? Um, uh, in relation to the negotiations in PSAC, I just don't even. It's a frustrating job, to be honest with you. You know, I, I like telling stories and I like talking uh, and explaining government policy, but when it comes to anything even close to the negotiating table, I, I can't say a word about it. Uh, because in, an inflection or an expression or the, the wrong word here or there can be read a million different ways by people who are actually at the table. I'm in a sensitive position as Minister of Labor. I'm not directly associated with these negotiations. But, you know, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that anything that I might say about it uh, could change the tone at that table. And the only thing I'm interested in right now, as you mentioned, as we head into week two, is getting a deal done and getting it done as quickly as possible. That's fair for the workers who are represented by their union reps at that table, but also fair for taxpayers as well. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. I mean, I'm happy to talk about it more, but I just can't say much about it. Well, but of course, in broad strokes, as opposed to compromising negotiations, the workers who have they're not without a contract for quite some time, and they have the last demand we heard was 13.5% over three years. They say they've compromised somewhat on that. Uh, Chris Aylward hasn't told us what that new number is. But yeah. you yourself have received four pay raises since the pandemic began. What do you say to workers who are now asking for a pay raise? And it looks like it's a 9% over three years is the offer, but there's been much more for parliamentarians. Oh, look, there's an acknowledgement that they, you know, that, you know, obviously what we're talking about here is pay raise. Uh, we want to make sure it's in our best interest to make sure that we get a, a fair deal because we need to retain those workers. I mean, that's that's the whole idea. We are in the biggest labor shortage in our country's history. We've got the highest employment, the lowest unemployment in, in the country. Um, we need to retain good people. And the other big issue, uh, you know, that that's at the table, too, um, you know, that I can't comment insofar as it's on the table. But generally speaking, uh, is remote work, uh, which, you know, post-COVID has become a big issue. So, uh, you know, those are big issues that they're discussing at the table and, you know, other other things certainly do affect it, like like what you mentioned. Uh, I'm going to leave it to those at the table to square those circles. But I'm really hopeful that we reach a, a, uh, a solution soon. I know that there are those who are going to be protesting in my office. Um, and uh, and look, I appreciate that and I appreciate the right to do that. And uh, and I have a, a deep abiding belief in collective bargaining and that the best deals are reached at the at the table. Because if you reach a deal at the table, it lasts 
that lasts longer and we don't have to go through this nearly as frequently. This is disruptive for people who are on the line. This is disruptive for people in my constituency and throughout the province who are relying on certain federal services. Uh, and this is uh, frustrating sometimes for taxpayers, too, who want to make sure that their money is, is well and fairly spent. So we're trying to reach a reasonable deal. I believe we can. We have time and time again, uh, and I believe we will this time too. It's just it's just hard waiting, boy, that's for sure. It's hard waiting. So Chris Aylward, the president of PSAC, is actually asking for the prime minister to be personally involved in this. So why are we simply leaving it up to Treasury Board President Mona Forche and her bargaining team? And why shouldn't the Minister of Labor be involved in a labor issue with federal employees? Well, because what I do as Labor Minister is uh, look after federally regulated private sector. So, you know, why do I oversee your arbitration and mediation between uh, a lot of big supply chain, about, about 6% of the workforce in total, but you're talking uh, ports, railways, uh, truck drivers who, who cross provincial or international borders, uh, telecommunications, uh, banking, so a lot of the, those big ones, and we've had, you know, we were threatened with several work stoppages in those. I mean, especially with rail and how it relates to the United States. I mean, these are really important supply chain issues. We have found agreement at the table time and time again. Um, you know, I'm watching this very closely. My colleague Mona Fortier and the Treasury Board team are extremely able. Um, I'm, I am certain a solution is going to be found. I just acknowledge, and I, you know, I would join those Newfoundlanders who. And Labradorians were saying, let's get this done. You know, we need to get it done. Well, let's talk about some of the demands made by PSAC and some liberal ideology. Very often when we hear about announcements with clean tech manufacturing tax credits, tax credits and what have you, we're talking about yeah. taking X number of cars off the road and greenhouse emissions. Working from home would certainly reduce greenhouse emissions versus having to drive to work. So even inside your own government's philosophy on that front, why isn't that something that's taken into consideration? Oh, look, I don't think there's any, you know, remote work is here to stay. I don't think there's any, uh, and, and, and look, I think it's, I think it's fantastic in some ways, in many ways, actually. It provides more flexibility. I mean, there are, we've seen uh, more women now in the workforce than we ever have in Canadian history. Uh, some of that is because we've allowed for more flexible work, and some work is given to being able to do it from. I, I mean, there's also a lot of work, particularly in our natural resources industries, where, uh, the, you know, nobody had that luxury during COVID. They had to show up for work, and it was a pretty anxious time for a lot of those workers. So this isn't for everybody. But for a lot of people, uh, it is an option, and they may be drawn to you know, a government job or a private sector job where people are very flexible in this way. So, no, 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 I I think it's terrific. I mean, not only that, but, you know, in larger centers in this country where people have to uh, have to commute, uh, you know, commute maybe an hour, hour and a half a day. This is an extra hour, hour and a half, two hours maybe in Toronto that they get home with their families or be able to pick up their kids or go, that, that, that's important stuff. And it's even, frankly, small things uh, like being able to eat at home, have your lunch at home. Uh, having lunch out if you don't pack your own lunch adds up like these are these are real world very real concerns for people and over the time of covid and and for the years afterwards perhaps the year or two afterwards they've been able to avail of that so for many people they don't want to give up that flexibility we just have to come to an agreement on how we it gets complicated from a managerial point of view an employer point of view on on a whole host of things that we frankly have to catch up on issues of workplace safety and and you know the idea of the home being a workplace and the issue of of liability for instance and also on the issue of when can i call you in and when don't you have to come in and those are all the federal government is the biggest employer in the country and and so a lot of eyes are on this how how are we going to sort this out we are though 
like any other employer uh, out there. Uh, we are trying to figure this out with our employees. It's just that when we do it, it's so big and it makes national news and it affects hundreds of thousands of people. But there are a lot of businesses and workers out there who are trying to figure this out and trying to find their own solutions. My philosophy usually is keep this as local as you can and allow individual workplaces, even in large organizations, to attempt to figure this out. But when you're dealing with large unions and, and you know, a big uh, sector like the federal government, uh, you got to come to terms with a, a lot of issues, um, and they're important ones. So there's a lot of eyes on this from other provincial governments and other areas of the private sector, big companies and small, and I acknowledge that. So there's a lot of pressure on both sides. Well, there's a distinct it's, thought it's out there. It's an important issue. Of course it is. There's a distinct thought out there that this strike will indeed possibly lead to more labor unrest across the country because people keep a very close eye on what the employer, in this case the federal government, is going to do, whether it be compromise or legislate back to work or what have you. It sounds like you're making a bit of an argument for a remote work with the work-life balance and what have you. There's another issue. is money. So in the most recent federal budget, the deficit was $40 billion, $10 billion more than was projected. And insofar as commercial real estate operations and other cost coverages, working from home has saved hundreds of millions of dollars. How is that not something that's more to the conversation? Because Canadians would like to see a little bit more of a thrifty approach on a variety of fronts, and that includes the amount of money to, to have uh, federal employees in the office. Yeah, I mean, look, look um, no one is debating the importance of remote work. I'm, I'm certainly not. Uh, I think it's a great benefit, and I think it's one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of people, a lot more people in the workforce uh, than we ever have before, um, because they are able to have that flexibility. It's just, you know, how do you, how do you manage it? How do you deal with it as a, as a large union and as a large employer? You know, how do you, how do you deal with, with the issues that happen, the grievances that happen, issues of liability, workplace safety? There's a whole host of things. Things. And it does get a little more complicated. Um, but what do we have? Know, a- I, I, I tend to be an optimist on this. I know you said that if it goes bad, if it goes sour, that it could have a cascade effect. If it goes well, and if they do find an agreement, I'm confident that they will. Um, you know, all eyes are going to be on that too. And, and I think other sectors may learn from, you know, this hard sweat that, that's happening right now before our eyes at the head. Wouldn't we have a firm understanding of how to manage to navigate for oversight and measuring productivity and efficiency over the last two and a half years already? So how can that be a complicating factor? Because we must have been doing something along those lines to ensure that people were getting the work done, measuring productivity, you know, staying in touch with the boss, all those types of things. Don't we know how to handle that? Yeah, I think right now it's also, you know, codifying it and, and you know, how it relates to a much larger agreement between uh, between the federal government and the employer. Um you know, I, I, it's, it's now crossing the T's and dotting the I's. But unfortunately, with big deals like this and with a lot of money at stake and a lot of taxpayer money, I acknowledge, uh, you know, the devil is in the details. And that's that's right now what they're dealing with. Like I said, it's, the sooner it gets done, the better. But but there is a, a lot at stake. I acknowledge that. And, uh, and, and one of those things are going to be. Well, at least for the federal government, you know, how do we how do we manage remote work? How do we deal with remote work? Um, you know, as well as the issue of pay. I would hope we know have a real good understanding of that. Last one, and this on money once again. What's the yeah. price tag of thirteen point five percent over three years versus nine percent over three years? Cumulative. Oh, gee, Patty, this is where I can't get into it. Honest to God, like. No, uh, that's just straight up math. That's not compromising anything. If we have one hundred fifty-five thousand people who are on strike right now, nine percent for those people is a number, versus thirteen point five is a number. Yeah. And then uh, an agreement will be found. Uh, 
I really can't comment on it. I really don't want to say absolutely anything about the numbers or, or that because I, the only thing I'm interested in right now is finding that deal. And uh, and you know, in any of the issues that I've had to deal with, CP Rail, CN Rail, Via Rail, you haven't heard a peep from me. We found deals on all of them. I don't think it's a coincidence. Uh, it's just uh, I don't want to complicate things by shooting my mouth off. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Tim. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Minister Seamus O'Regan. Time for the news. You want to talk about that or anything else? You can do it after this. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Not too bad. Patty, calling you about the airline, airline uh, situation today. It's uh, hard to believe that in this day and age that we still get treated the way that we get treated here in Newfoundland when you're flying with uh, the... Uh, the airlines. Just uh, just to give you an update, this this Sunday we flew from Tampa into Montreal on our way to St. John's. When we arrived in Montreal, we were told that because of fog, we wouldn't be able to get home until Friday, which is today. Uh, Five-day delay. There was no assistance by the airlines, no attempt to help us. It was just uh, find your own way. So while I was at the counter, I was in a situation where I could take care of myself and my family. But, you know, there was two people at the counter that broke my heart. There was one gentleman with his wife in a wheelchair, and there was another gentleman who was assisting his wife, who obviously had a medical issue. And they were, you could see that they were lost because, I mean, at the counter, it was just, you know, good luck. And uh, we're not going to provide you anything for your for your situation. They told us, like you say, that we could get out of Montreal on Friday. So we made some calls and found out, you know, that other other locations were getting people out. So we asked if we could uh, go to, to Ottawa to get out, but we're told that that city wasn't being utilized to help resolve the problem as of yet, so we couldn't utilize that. We ended up uh, getting transferred over to Toronto after that was probably after 10 calls or 15 calls on my part and we spent two days in Toronto on our own dime and finally got home but the situation the way that they treat you is is just it's brutal you know some of the staff were fantastic but some of the staff uh, they need to get a basic lesson in compassion well, I mean, the frustration in airports is very real and it was certainly chaotic over the Christmas holidays. You know, part of the problem here is that the two big airlines, they really have us where they want us. And so their need for top quality customer service is not that important to them because they know you have very few options. So all we, all we wanted, Patty, was basic basic service or basic human compassion and we got neither you know and the situation was like they were saying there was fog in st john's so we said okay listen we'll go to deer lake or we'll go to gander or we'll go to sydney nova nova scotia and there there, none of those were options so it it throws the question you know is it really fog or it it seemed more like an overbooking problem because while we were there you know, there was people who had been in the airport two days when we arrived. And the frustrating part, like I said to the people at Air Canada, if you had told us when we were in Florida, you know, that uh, we couldn't get out of Montreal today. I mean, when you pack to go south, you don't pack to bring your winter clothes for Montreal for five days. So, you know, they left you in a, in a situation which was untenable for, for most of the people. And there was a whole lot of people up in Montreal who were 
not able to, couldn't afford to go to a hotel. They were staying in the airport, which is, which is this day and age, Patty, is just not the way things should be. Yeah, you know, and now there's been a newly tabled passenger bill of rights that sounds like they're trying to tighten it up, although it leaves plenty of loopholes still available. One that kind of irks me in this new piece of legislation is talking about increasing the fines that could be levied against airlines te- by, by tenfold, up to $250,000. That comes from the Canadian Transport Agency. The problem with that one is, even with the fines that were in place last year, the number of times that they find the airlines, zero. They spent their entire time trying to deal with the backlog of some 30 or 40,000 complaints. So you can tell me all you like that you're going to find the airlines, but the his- history says that you don't do it anyway. So it could be $5 billion. If you don't do it, it doesn't matter. Well, Patty, if they find them $5 billion, nine chances out of 10, they'll get a government bailout down the road anyway. But that's that's another, another argument altogether. Another point I wanted to bring up for people, Patty, is that there's a whole lot of people out there when they travel think, I, I've got insurance on my credit card, so I'm covered. Well, there's a lot of circumstances, and including this, that when your flight is covered by, by fog, most insurance companies don't cover that. You know, so if people are going to travel, they might want to take the time to see what they, how they are covered under their insurance, so that they're prepared for when a situation like this happens. This is the first time this has ever happened to me. When I leave again, you know, I'll go prepared for more than one day, because it seems like this is going to be the norm rather than the, rather than just a rare occasion. But uh, you know, from my perspective, Patty. We've taken a huge step backwards when it comes to uh, serving the public. It seems like since COVID has taken place, it, it, it's a free-for-all for everybody just to give no service to anybody anymore. And I think it's pathetic. It certainly is. And then there was someone who sent me a note uh, a couple of days ago, I guess it was, even about compensation for headaches in travel. And people on the exact same flight with the exact yeah. same implications, but the exact same problems, some people got compensated, some didn't. Like, how does that, that work? That that, ha- that happened with our flight, too. On our on the flight home the other day, we were talking to people on the flight who had all been, most of the people on the plane when I flew home were in the same circumstance that we were, but there were some people who had been compensated and some and most of us had not. And it just put salt in your wounds. You know, like you say, for us, we were, we were okay, but there were a whole lot of people who struggled through the situation. And, you know, and especially if somebody's traveling with the, uh, somebody who's medically compromised, you know, to to get the surprise that we got and said, you know, and the lack of compassion that we got at the counter. And, and again, I'll say again, you know, I, I spoke probably 15 or 20 times to people that with Air Canada over the couple of days that we were stranded. And there were some of them that were absolutely fantastic, but there were some that really, 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 really need uh, some compassion training. I appreciate the time, Sean. Sorry about the headache. No, thank you for the time. I just wanted to air it out because I I don't want somebody else to be in the same circumstance that we were in. I'm glad you did. Thanks for this. Have a nice weekend. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Question from Tenley about Amy Cody, where she works. So Amy Cody herself reached out to me, and it's right on the town's website and right on the MNL website regarding Amy Cody, is that she does indeed work for the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure in Grand Falls, Windsor. Appreciate the information. Let's go. Line number five, say good morning to the PC member for Grand Falls, Windsor, Buckins. He's the housing critic. That's Chris Tibbs. Chris you're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly, and happy Friday to you, sir. Same to you. Uh, I heard in your uh, preamble this morning, I want to talk about housing, but you also talked about the uh, immigration that we have here. 
uh, coming in and asks a certain question that should be okay to ask. And, you know, we, we, we all support immigration, and it's very important for so many reasons to the province here. Uh, but our, demogra- our demographic crisis continues, and immigration is one of the keys to ensuring a vibrant Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, for years ahead. But we don't just we don't just support immigration. We also support the successful settlement of you know any any newcomers that come to the province, and we want to ensure that they stay here. Uh, we learned from estimates this past week, uh, Patty, that a 55% increase in the wait list for affordable housing in Newfoundland and Labrador, and the vacancy rate in St. John's is almost zero. Uh, there are 290 housing units sitting vacant, but of course, a lot of those need repairs and whatnot. And what's a little bit more disturbing about that, Patty, right now, there's about 20% staff positions that are vacant in the department as well. And these people, you know, they fix up and they fill these these uh, these units, which is very important as well. Uh, now, having said that, Patty, I'll veer off for one second and just say that the people that do work in this department are phenomenal. You know, we work with them on a daily basis, and they do some very good work, the people that are there, and I want to thank them personally. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, Patty, the wait list has grown from, you know, 1,500 to over 2,300. Um, that's, that, that's applications. You know, that could be a single person or a senior, but it could be a family of three or four, too. So now we could be talking about, you know, people in the five and six thousands uh, of people that are, that are essentially homeless here in New Newfoundland and Labrador, and uh, we think that's not good enough. Uh, you know, uh, this is not just a St. John's issue. Every MHA across the province is dealing with it. Uh, affordable housing. Uh, it's good to see the recent announcements. We're happy to see them, uh, but we need to see some more work outside the overpass in the more rural areas, areas as well. And uh, I'm hoping that the uh, minister comes out with the next announcement or the next coming announcements uh, for the entire province because we have a real issue on our hands right now. It seems as though you know, Patty, the goalposts for low income has moved so much just in the past three years. You have people working 40, 50 hours a week that, you know, it's a sin. They're just trying to get ahead. And affordable housing, something as essential as that, is so difficult to deal with. Yeah, and it's an issue up and down the line. There has been an announcement of some 1,600 units uh, to be built. We're trying to get the status of them. One was 850, one was 750, and that's good, but it'd be helpful to know where and how far along any of those projects are. You say the need to create more jobs outside the overpass. What type of approach are you talking about on that front? Because there's, of course, going to be lots of government jobs or what have you in the bigger centres like St. John's. But, you know, mining is growing, uh, aquaculture is growing, the uh, forestry is, in, as far as we can tell, is in pretty good shape. So what kind of approach are you talking about by creating jobs? Because everyone wants a job. The trick is how to create them. Because government cannot be and should not be in the business simply putting job ads in the paper as a job creation policy. There's got to be creating a landscape where job creation is available to the private sector and private capital. So what are you suggesting should be done? Sorry, Patty, I may have misspoken. I didn't mean jobs. I meant units. Okay. Yeah, um, okay. Because uh, it seems as though this uh, this recent announcement are for units in St. John's in the metro area, which is great. We, we know that, you know, the, the, the has a, a, a high densification of people out there. Uh, but the, the rural areas outside Newfoundland, outside the overpass there, um, we, we need an announcement on housing as well. We need some housing in Grand Falls, Windsor. I know our wait list right here is, you know, it, it's, it's over 100 applications just for here in Grand Falls, Windsor. Uh, so we need some some units outside the overpass. Some we need some good announcements for for rural areas here in Newfoundland Labrador because they're just as affected as well. No doubt they are. There's a question, Chris, that people have posed to me many many times about where you spend the bulk of your year. Are you here in the province all the time, or do you work elsewhere outside of the province? 
I am. I, uh, <laughs> that's funny, Patty. It's been brought up to me many times as well. Uh, the fact of the matter is, Patty, and I don't mind touching on this at all. Um, so, you know, I, I do. I, I work very hard as an MHA myself and my assistant, and I enjoy my job. I love my job. Uh, the fact of the matter is, Patty, in four years, I've never taken a vacation. I've never left this province on a vacation. Uh, I have left for 87 days over the past four years, which works out to be about three weeks a year, I guess. Uh, I go back to Alberta. I jump on a rig, uh, basically for my mental health. Uh, my mental health, my physical health, it gets me back in shape. It gets me back in order. I'm not one for beaches. I don't like any anything down in Mexico or Florida where a lot of MHAs or ministers may go. Uh, so I take my time, my personal time. I go to Alberta. I dig in. I work. I lose about 20 pounds for, for every time I've gone up there. And uh, the fact of the matter is COVID hit my family quite, quite, quite as, as well, just as much as any other families. My wife works in the... Um, uh, food and beverage industry, uh, we, we, we were hurt pretty bad as well. You know, I took an $80,000 pay cut to take this job uh, from my old drilling job, which is fine, and I'm quite happy to do it. Uh, but on my personal time, my, my three weeks vacation a year, I quite enjoy going back to Alberta, digging in, getting dirty, getting my hands dirty, keeping up my skills as well. And you know what? I'm 46 years old. I'll be looking to go back to that industry when, uh, when this job ends. I appreciate your time this morning, Chris. Thank you. I really appreciate it too, Patty. If I could just have one more moment. Very quickly, and, uh, Chris, i got to go. Remind everybody, today is a day of mourning uh, for those that are lo- that we've lost in the workplace or have gotten sick or injured. And I just want to remind everybody, Patty, that it's not just your right, but it's your, resp- your obligation or responsibility to refuse unsafe work at any job site. So, you know what? Our prayers and thoughts are with those at home today who may have lost somebody or somebody that got sick or, or injured. Thank you very much, Patty. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Enjoy your day. You too. Bye-bye. It's Chris Tibbs, Bye-bye. PC member, Grand Falls, Windsor, Buckins. Final break of the morning and the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the artistic director of Todos Productions, that's Santiago Guzman. Good morning, Santiago. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Couldn't be better. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you very much. And I am so happy to be joining today to chat about this show that is happening at the LSPU Hall this weekend. It's called Happy Anniversary, written by Vanessa Carbosa Whalen and directed by St. John's favorite, Ruth Lawrence. Uh, this is a beautiful show about uh, gender-based um, violence intertwined with a very moving tango. It's a beautiful show that talks about relationships. It talks about um, how do we coexist and how do we deal with um, a situation like that when you feel like you're all alone. Um, it stars uh, two Brazilian actors that are uh, with us in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, their names are Ana Luisa Ramos, who is playing Marta, Bruno Vinas playing Carlos, and Alicia Cruz playing Mel. And the, the design team is absolutely beautiful. It's a combination between uh, very established uh, artists uh, as well as emerging artists in our community. Uh, as an artistic director for Todos, I, I always think about what are the stories that we're bringing to our community of Newfoundland and Labrador, and I think that this story is very important. And, you know, who would have thought the play has been in development since 2019, and who would have thought that in 2023 this play remains relevant. And so Happy Anniversary surrounds the, the Portuguese-speaking couple, and they're celebrating their 12th wedding anniversary, looking back at the beginning of their romance and how it is they've grown apart. And it's, of course, a very difficult topic when we talk about domestic violence. I'm really fascinated with the incorporation of dance. Tango in particular, people who can picture in their mind's eye tango, it very much screams tension and passion. How, does it, how is it incorporated in the play? 
That's right. Well, and that was all beautifully uh, achieved by the choreographer, Andrea Dove, who um, was trying to interpret the, the metaphor of uh, the, the violence in relation to these two characters. I think that uh, Vanessa, in her own writing, she's a multidisciplinary artist with a very solid uh, practice in dance. Uh, she was trying to incorporate that in her own writing, indicating those moments where um, uh, the movement said way more than words. And I think that's a beautiful thing that uh, has been accomplished through this production. Um, and, and that is, you know, uh, an, an outstanding thing. And, and as you mentioned, talking about this topic is very difficult and uh, significantly relevant. And I think that what we're trying to do with this piece is to create that awareness. Now, um, surrounding uh, the production, we have uh, different things where um, we are, have dedicated a space in the theater where people can step out if they feel uncomfortable or triggered by what they see on the stage. Um, and after the show, we also offer uh, a light uh, refreshment uh, for people to gather and discuss if they want to keep talking about the, what they just witnessed. Now, at the same time with the production, we are um, asking for donations for uh, different um, community groups that are specifically working towards um, gender or to eradicate or to address gender-based violence. Um, so we're accepting financial donations for the YWCA St. John's Nest Fund, um, as well as the Saltwater Community Association, a women's shelter in the Bonavista Peninsula. Um, we are accepting clothing as well and uh, hygiene uh, items for women uh, to donate to the St. John's Women's Center for their uh, clothing boutique program. So we are really trying to package um, this uh, opportunity to create awareness about gender-based violence, but at the same time supporting other organizations within our own community. And there will be testimonials uh, bookending the performance from women who have experienced domestic violence. You know, when creating a body of work, and especially when we're talking about an artistic performance, you know, there's a takeaway hope or a takeaway intended by the director, the writers, and the actors themselves. So is this simply for awareness and to provoke thought and conversation, or is there something else that you're hoping the audience leaves uh, as a takeaway? Absolutely. I think that um, something that Vanessa has done is that in the process of writing, um, taking those um, experiences and, and adding them into this uh, beautiful way of, of storytelling is to, um, as you say, create awareness, but also leave people with a sense of there is a future, there is uh, a hope. And I would invite uh, your listeners to come see this show happening um, tonight and this weekend at 8 p.m. We are also having a matinee at the LSPU Hall. Now, if you don't find yourselves in the metro area, we also have uh, live streamings uh, happening tonight and tomorrow night, and you can get your tickets through the LSPU Hall ticketing system. I appreciate you making time for the program this morning, Santiago. And for folks who are indeed in the metro region and can get to the LSPU Hall, the tickets are available at 709-753-4531, or you can simply go to tickets.lspuhall.ca. Thanks for this. Break a leg. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. As Santiago Guzman is the artistic director at Todos Productions. Happy anniversary hitting the stage at the LSPU Halls. We began last night. It was the premiere. It runs right through the 30th. All right, quick check-in on the Twitter before we wrap it up. We were going to have a chat about Marine Atlantic and some of the implications for their fuel surcharge raising from 13% to 17%, and that absolutely has an impact not just for the tourism industry but for the trucking industry and then consequently the consumers 
who are at the end of the truckers dropping off their goods, which we inevitably will pay more for. The issue must indeed start with some sort of adjustment to the 65% uh, cost recovery model that's currently in place. It's not working for us. Fine and dandy to tell me that it's our constitutional highway, but unless it works to our maximum benefit, which it does not, then we've got work to do on that front. All right, quick check on the Twitter. All right, there you go. And uh, the email is vocm at open, or pardon me, openline at vocm.com. And we will indeed pick up this conversation on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.